0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt
2: Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Good morning, friends. Happy Friday. You made it. You did it. We're so proud of you. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side, along with uh, Becca and Terry. The gang's gathered. Uh, we have... Are you know we we are locked and loaded with truth and ideas and information stuff you need to know to live healthier, happier lives. Today we will be revisiting an interview about uh, how you know more online shopping. Which by the way, we found out Amazon Prime has about a hundred million primers. Yeah, they said that. I think they had an earnings call or something, that is so amazing. they mentioned that yesterday. Hundred million people are Amazon Prime users, plus hundreds and hundred, or hundreds of millions of others that aren't. Um, but if if we shop more online, doesn't that mean we need more trucks, more transport, more shipping companies, more trucks creating more congestion in, you know, downtown cities? Hmm. We'll be talking about the impact that uh, all of this online shopping is going to have and maybe some of the changes that will be coming down the pike as well. We'll get to all of that fun plus, of course uh, – more uh, news about um, to help you live a healthier life. Accountability. We'll be getting into the topic of accountability as well. How to how to be accountable for your life and other fun, just crazy insights. Plus the headlines. We'll get into the headlines. Uh, Comey um, has released all. of well, not he didn't release them. The FBI <laughs> Department of Justice released no, all of the Comey
3: docs. No, nobody released them. So oh, they didn't release. them? No, it? what it says is his. Personal memos of his conversations with President Trump leaked by Congress to the Associated Press. Oh, so they were brought to Congress from the FBI yeah. within minutes the Associated Press had them. They were leaked So, so the Democrats in
2: Congress apparently leaked these. Allegedly. Well, the, Nobody the, really but knows. the funny thing is, is – and this is the, an interesting thing about Comey is he's very explicit and he says – He's not adding much new. He's just repeating what was in all of the – There's more
3: details, more in-depth. It's 15 pages, so it's not like a lot I read some of them. They're quite boring. Well, they're memos. They're just like, oh, and I remembered he said this. But it is
2: amazing. He's like, I'm writing this from the car five minutes after leaving the president's meeting. Take notes. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, like, don't you wish you had taken that grade of
3: notes? Well, you take notes during a lot of interviews – yeah, and then I just throw them right in the bin. Right. But, you know, you're trying to remember something. Yeah. And I, I, I know people who take notes and you don't don't use them for any other reason yeah. other than that exercise of writing them down helps them remember better. Exactly. That's exactly what I do it for. I take notes while I'm driving.
2: I take notes everywhere. It's just how I work. It's how I roll. Um, okay, fun stuff there. Um, boy, lots – Lots and lots going on. Um, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What other things should we be paying attention to? So the
3: Comey memos, Back That's what everyone's memos. going nuts on. But yeah. what we're going to go to CIA Director Mike Pompeo. He's yeah. supposed to be the new Secretary oh, yeah. of State. Yeah, he's got a little confirmation hearing issue yeah. possibly How on the hard horizon. That be? A little fight there. So Pompeo vying to become that Secretary of State, and on Thursday, his efforts got a significant boost. Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota. Um, announced her support for Pompeo in a statement Thursday, becoming the first Democratic senator to indicate that she would vote to confirm Pompeo as America's chief diplomat. Was well, that the one he needed, or were they already well, counting uh, her vote? Math is kind of scary here. A high camp said Pompeo is committed to empowering the diplomats of the State Department, so he can do they can do their jobs in advancing American interests. That vote could put Pompeo across the finish line, per CBS News, Whew. even if one Republican. Uh, isn't in his favor. Kentucky Senator Rand Paula hasn't backtracked on his intention to yeah. vote down or even filibuster the nomination, but Heidkamp's vote would make up for it. Still, Arizona's Republican senators may complicate things as Jeff Flake is still up in the air and John McCain is away from the Capitol undergoing cancer treatment. Well, it, that's interesting because
2: um, wasn't it like nine months ago that he was uh, approved through the Senate for his um, CIA job yes there were several Democrats yeah. that Diane signed with Feinstein them. was mm-hmm. for him and now she's not for him right so she was he was, she was okay if
3: he was CIA director but not Secretary of State right and this he did, he weird. didn't go into the CIA and just start gutting the place and no. firing people left and right he worked with the people who were there yeah and they advanced the administration's interest while working you know within the CIA infrastructure did he right? did he buy a lot of expensive furniture no oh <laughs> well, that was someone else yeah He said a few things that got people—well, that was the other thing, is he didn't really say anything because you don't really hear from the CIA director. No, yeah, that's the great thing. You don't have to say anything. But he did go in and meet with the president Mm -hmm. daily, giving him his briefing, which is usually not what the director does. Doesn't the
2: CIA director just usually walk around D.C. late at night and stand in the shadows? Yeah, and he whispers. It's a great gig if you're a night person follow the money <laughs> <laughs> follow the shadow
3: Arizona teachers will stage a statewide walkout next week as they step up their demands for higher pay and increased school funding the Arizona Education Association the AEA huh yeah they announced uh, Thursday night that uh, 78% of the school employees in the state were in favor of the walkout which won't begin until April 26th to give parents time to prepare Oh,
2: see, honestly, this is a smart walkout. Yeah. You know what I mean? Get everyone ready,
3: and then just tell them, you know, this could be a week. Now, the other ones happened around spring break. Yeah, that was So that was kind of the timing there. Now they're like, we'll give you a week to prepare, and then schools close. It's coming. Okay. The vote follows a month of mounting protests to demand increased funding for public schools and an offer by Governor Doug Ducey to boost teacher pay by 20%. Arizona ranks 43rd in the U.S. in terms of how much it pays its teachers. Wow, so so this sounds like this is going to be happening more and more and more. Yeah, just be you know who because every every state that gets a raise, then there's a new state that's the lowest. Oh yeah, right. So we'll just keep doing this process. Oh, wow. Survivors of the Parkland and Columbine shootings joined together to campaign for stricter gun laws on the eve of the 19th anniversary of the massacre at columbine high school that left 13 people dead that is today the anniversary oh wow parkland students along with columbine survivors victims families current students and members of the surrounding community in littleton colorado gathered thursday night in a park near the school students from uh, 2,500 schools across the nation are planning a walkout today to commemorate columbine and to demand stricter gun controls at uh, columbine they haven't had school on April 20th since the shooting.
4: It's that, a day to go out and give
3: service, a day to go out and, you know, think of others. That was a day, I mean, that was a day that really broke every rule. Yeah. I remember hmm. coming home from, would have been college, I guess? It's yeah. It's been like. What is happening? What is what the could is You see the, the kids walking deal? out of the school yeah. and just it was chaos. Ah, so crazy. Finally, yes. the average American utters their first curse word by 10:54 uh, a.m. according to a new data. Well, it depends how early you get up. Yeah. A study into the everyday stress and frustration of 2,000 Americans aimed to explore how much stress Americans take on and how exactly they deal with it. Having a bad day, you might be one one of the one in four Americans who can't get past 9 a.m. without cursing most days. Wow. While the majority of respondents swear before 11 a.m which would be the 1054. (laughs) Perhaps the the number of potty mouths isn't too uh, surprising considering that cursing is the most common way to express stress and frustration, according to the results of the study. The new survey conducted by Nine Round Kickbox Fitness... Oh, wow. Sounds like a good study. Yeah. They found uh, financial worry to be the biggest cause of stress and frustration among Americans, 56%, followed by such time-honored stress contributors like not getting enough sleep... Uh-huh. Just 36%. Health concerns, 35. And work, 30. As- how about Legos? No. Not stepping on a Lego in the no. middle of the night? As mentioned, cursing is the most popular way for, to express their frustration with 63% saying that's how they manifest for them most frequently. Yelling is another popular method of relief with 49% and, sadly enough, crying at 39%. Hmm. How about
2: just avoiding everyone watching Netflix for eight hours? It does not say that, no. It does I'm go on such that, an anomaly. that
3: people are able to uh, cope with their their stress by working out and kickbox fit, kickbox fitness or whatever yeah, these guys no, are doing. Yeah. No, that sounds that, like that, a that's, waste. That's kind of their their. Sounds like something there. Becca would do. Work out? Yeah, kickbox.
5: That's when I get all my cursing done, personally.
3: <laughs> I, I feel a lot of stress relief when I do. When you kickbox or when you? When I work out. Do you? Yeah. Because, I mean, you're tired. You just expended a lot of energy. And you're yeah. just like, a, I feel a ton of stress release watching people work out. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, why don't you work out instead of watch people work out?
2: Well, why? If it works. But just me? don't pay attention just, to them. Do, I just do what works right. for me. Um, that's interesting. By the way, I've never heard my wife curse, hmm. She's. I have never heard her say any curse word ever. In fact, I don't think she's ever said one. I've tried to get her to say some, and she won't say them.
6: <laughs> Is it because you work on a morning show? And yeah. I,
2: I, I also know. never see my wife. There you go. Maybe, maybe, she, maybe that has a lot to do with She curses before 1054.
0: <laughs> I actually so work with my wife
2: uh, the rest of the day mm. after I leave here, and I, honestly, the woman never, she doesn't curse.
3: Does she have, like, the substitute curses? No. Like, shucks? No. Darn? Nah! <laughs> Heck.
2: No.
7: mm
3: Okay. None of it. She's so healthy. Hmm.
2: It's crazy. She also works out. Doesn't kickbox though. I I like just I I mean I'll watch her clean or work around the house or whatever. That makes me feel really good. For some reason, it makes her more angry.
3: I've cleaned up my language around my kids, or basically because of my kids. I go oh, sunny days. <laughs> my my son's like, "Why do you say sunny days?" Like it just happens. Why sometimes. do you like? Why do you like defer back to like some eighty-year-old man? I don't know. <laughs> you sunny days. Sunny day, yeah.
2: It's really odd. Oh, those are good days. Good times. Well, straight ahead, we'll be talking about the impact that all of our online shopping is having on uh, the trucking industry, the delivery service industry, and, uh, you know, congestion in the cities. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Zappos, Etsy, eBay, and Amazon are some of the largest online retailers in the world. Online shopping continues to grow, but what does this mean for delivery trucks? Cities like Seattle that were built long before UPS and long before next day deliveries need to revamp the way they manage commercial vehicles to avoid a sea of traffic. Several months ago, I spoke with Ann Goodchild. She's an associate professor and the director at the Supply Chain Transportation and Logistics Center for the University of Washington. I began the interview by asking Dr. Goodchild about the growing trend of online shopping and how all of those shipments could clog up city streets with delivery trucks.
6: A couple of things. I do think about it all the time.
2: This is your um, job, isn't it, Dan?
6: <laughs> but I think you know, civil engineers, uh, our work is to make cities work, and the better we do our job, the less you think about it. So it, it is sort of the nature of, of of transportation systems, of clean water systems, of Quality buildings, you know, they're not supposed to be that noticeable. They're supposed to work, and and you get to go about your business. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think congestion. It, it, this is part of uh, um, a real pressing problem at the at the moment, which is we have a a transportation system in the United States that largely works on on the car mm. uh, and on. Um, and urbanization, and uh, increasing density, and increasing populations, and you know, lack of of growth in that transportation capacity has really led to uh, pretty significant congestion in most urban areas. And it, you know, another trend to add to that is online shopping and increased delivery services. And so it's, you know, when combined with these other trends, it, it is a problem.
2: Wow. It um, again, these cities and like Salt Lake City has pretty wide streets, um, except still trucks. And all of a sudden you start bringing in a lot of trucks. I mean, when when trucks when at one big, large semi has to go to one Walmart store and everyone would go to that Walmart store to pick up their stuff and then drive back in their cars, um, mm-hmm. it's a little different, or take public transportation, it's different mm-hmm. than when all of a sudden that truck has to make 150 deliveries to an apartment
6: building. Yeah. Well, and, so we've looked at exactly that problem. I, so two things. One in, um, so I'm a professor, so I can I can just talk about, the for so long, about issues. But um, yeah. you'll have to cut me off. Um, the one is we have this, Thing in In transportation, where if you build it, they will come, mm. so you know the more we build roads it doesn't make them less congested, it makes people travel more, so there's this sort of feedback between a, a an uncongested transportation network and people's desire to travel um but we have looked at at this issue of you know what's what's more travel what's more uh we talk about vehicle miles traveled uh is that a delivery truck making a hundred deliveries or is that a hundred people traveling to the store and back to their mm. homes again? Cause that's actually a lot of travel too. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's different vehicles. They're typically personal cars versus a delivery truck. Um, but actually in most cases that direct you know, substitution I means a delivery truck is actually better than, than uh, cause they'll make a tour. Mm. Um, and individual cars, people, you know, do that by themselves and, and do half of their trip completely empty. Mm-hmm. Um, but that you know other that raises other questions about whether online shopping is is just substituting for the shopping you would have done or whether it's on top
2: of oh, wow, something yeah. that, that you would have done. Yeah. yeah. So you're doing both. And then um I mean I guess too another issue is just, you only have so much space anyway. And so I'm assuming, are some of these apartment complexes in big cities, are they going to have to start rethinking parking? Or do they have to rethink just where you stage a car or stage a truck? Do they have to have post office box, you know, places, blocks from your home, where they can get all of this in? What are some of the thoughts they're thinking, as you guys are creating this, this plan for the future? What does it look like?
6: Yeah, yeah, and that's that's exactly what is happening now. That's what people are thinking about now, and and in a lot of places in the U.S. and, and other countries, people are trying different solutions and seeing what works. You know, it's it is so new, and it's um, it reflects a number of, of of pressures. One is, you know, what is the city willing to try? Uh, one is, what do customers Want, and then the other is sort of the the limits of the physical infrastructure that we have. So, a lot of of sort of condos or apartment buildings um, have really had to adapt to serving as your as your receiving station for packages. And I know our our my office, the sort of main office at my work, is is full of packages most of the time because they're doing a job that they they didn't do in the past in terms of accepting probably some home packages, but also a lot of of packages for work. And we don't have a physical space to do that, so we've actually converted an old supply cupboard into a storage space. So I think there's some very kind of physical modifications. And newer buildings, I've, I've seen newer buildings built with in, you know an intentional storage space um, there's also software systems now that most newer or, or sort of um, really managed department buildings have so they'll have these software systems that allow them to to note the receipt of the package and then email you or send you a message that your package has arrived um, and and they're sort of tracking what those when those packages come in um, we're evaluating. In the Urban Freight Lab, which is a, a partnership with retailers and, and carriers and building managers and city, the city of Seattle, um, what kinds of things might be good solutions for all of those parties? Because individual companies are, are trying things, right? Amazon has right. Amazon Locker. Amazon, you know, they decide where those are located and they serve Amazon customers only. Um, the city is interested in in a shared. Um, possible locker system that would accommodate all companies and all carriers. And that might be at a transit station
7: Hmm.
6: um, so that, you know, people taking transit could pick up their package on the way home and that would reduce trips Mm -hmm. because they, you know, they would be using their their regular travel mode and it wouldn't require that truck delivery. It might also improve. There's There's some neighborhoods where you can't where where people won't deliver and so that's you know that's a disadvantage oh, for, yeah. for people who live in those neighborhoods. And so uh, you know a, a locker system that was city sponsored would, would improve the the access that those people had to online shopping.
2: It's a it, it's really an amazing um, problem. Because it's a problem I don't think we ever could have thought about. Well, right. I the mm-hmm. average person wouldn't have thought about 20 years ago, 30 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and yet you, you're an associate professor and director at the Supply Chain Transportation and Logistics Center mm-hmm. for the University of Washington. A university has a supply chain transportation and logistics center.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's all of a sudden it seems – It's brilliant. We hear stories in the news from, like, UPS about how they – I can't remember if it's left turn. No, I think they always try to take right turns.
6: That's right,
7: yeah.
2: And everything's a right turn and everything's a right turn. But if UPS is always doing right turns and FedEx is always doing right turns and everyone – and Amazon (laughs) starts doing right turns, um, it seems like the rest of us are never going to be able to get anywhere. So. (laughs) and maybe that's just yeah. my naivete but it, you really do need these big players to all be a part of these solutions don't you
6: yeah absolutely and and they can um, – the real value in our lab is that these this final we're calling it the final 800 feet so you know, mm. amazon can can locate warehouses and they can operate those warehouses just like they, you know, just the way they want to. It's a controlled environment. They can design their supply chain just the way they want to, you know, with their information systems. But this last 800 feet, they don't control uh, because parking is is a shared resource that the city manages. And there's a lot of people competing for that curb space. You know, the Mm -hmm. sidewalk where they have to walk to make that delivery is a shared resource with lots of goals. You know, not only to serve those delivery companies, but also for you and me walking and for signage and for restaurants or cafes. Um, and then the buildings themselves have a number of objectives and, and different ways in which they can receive goods. And,
2: and security. So,
6: yes. yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it's
2: not like you can just go up to the door
6: right right yeah i know and that's you know that's it's different at every building so this is very messy mm. this last 800 feet and and any individual like a city or a building or a delivery company they can't control it themselves and so they need to come together and and work together and and balance the different objectives and understand the problem from each other's perspectives and so that's really what we've created with the lab and and out of that we will come up You know, we will produce solutions that balance some, you know, security and and equity and and opportunity and and cost and um, Mm. environmental impact. And and so we're looking for what those solutions are. And we've we've just begun with, you know, mapping what that process looks like. It's quite different in a historic building Mm. in in the oldest parts of Seattle, which were built before cars.
7: Oh, um, wow. Yeah.
6: You know, they have a very different infrastructure uh, than a new building, which is, you know, a new condo building downtown, which um, is designed very differently. So what solution you might use is is quite different in those, those different building types. So we've, you know, we've begun that work and there are some, I mean, it's fascinating just to see how the system works and there's some really neat, you know, there's tunnels under the city and there's, there's turntables for trucks so they don't have to make,
7: Oh, uh, like, the,
2: yeah, turn. yeah. you'd have the 18 point turn to get yeah. that semi around. Yeah. That's great.
6: Yeah. yeah. So there's some really, really neat things. And we haven't, you know, we, we actually have, we, I mean, the city and, and I guess us, you know, collectively as, as communities don't have good, kind of maps of that infrastructure, we, we know where the on-street parking is but mm-hmm. because a lot of this infrastructure is in private buildings.
2: Yeah, or in alleys um, or, yeah.
6: Exactly, yeah. So, you know, just establishing where is that infrastructure so that we can look at the questions you mentioned, like, what is, you know, the capacity of the city to accept deliveries and how do we improve that or how do, if we want to modify it, what what, what impact would that have wow. on 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 the delivery company's ability to make do their work.
2: I'm assuming one of the benefits of the future would be, you know, the integration of technology and um maybe some of these companies could partner on some of their scheduling programs, maybe the trucks could show up show up in an order uh, is technology going to impact and how do you see it happening?
6: Yeah, so I think there's te- there's technology so, right now, when you buy something online, say you buy something from amazon um it's very seamless. It's very easy to do right They have that one click ordering, and the delivery process is not so seamless. You ever tried you know it it's they're they're working on it yeah. but you know trying to track your delivery, trying to figure out where it is, and if you can figure that out, how to redirect it somewhere. That is is not as seamless as the, the purchasing process, and so I think that technology and it can be. You know, I think there's some there's some market reasons why it's not quite so seamless, but there's technology that's going to improve that delivery process for us. And one of the big costs or, or inefficiencies in the current system is is failed deliveries. So quite a high percentage, it can be sort of up to 30% of, of packages have to be attempted more than once. And so that's, you know, that's two trips instead of one. Yeah. So That's a big waste. Right. And so if we can reduce that number of failed deliveries, that's going to have a big improvement. And so we want that's one of the reasons that, that lockers are a desirable yeah. solution, because you don't need to be there, but it's still secure. Um, and the other is if you can track or you can get online and you can, you know, if you know, you're not going to be home, you can redirect a package somewhere else. So I think there's a couple of ways that we can use technology, both kind of the software and information side, but also the hardware, the docker side to just reduce the total number of trips necessary. We, it has to be delivered once, but it does not have to be delivered more than once. Yeah. Um,
2: well, I mean, we, if, we if the truck way. could be so organized that it all goes to one building, one truck, one delivery, one drop off, one time.
6: Yeah. And, you know, a single company that wants to do that because it's cheaper right. for them than, you know, sending three trucks. But because we have yeah numerous carriers and numerous mm-hmm. companies doing this work, yeah, you know, at my own house, I might have three different delivery companies visiting my house in a day.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: So that's, that's, you know, if that was all done by one, one company that might be one trip, but you know, we, we have competition in our transportation system and then there's a value on that competition. So it's, it's uh, hard to navigate and, and figure, you know, where do we encourage cooperation or yeah. I think we're, I think they're, we're not interested in, in controlling that, but, but encouraging um, efficiency and, and there's a very natural, desire for efficiency because it's cheaper. That's right. Save
2: money. um, It also seems like so many of us spend 8-10 hours of our day at our workplace Mm -hmm. that if I could have my stuff delivered to my workplace and my work saw that as a perk or a benefit um, that maybe I had a a little valet that would help me carry it to my car. I mean, you know, businesses could take care of their people that way as well.
6: Right, yeah, and there are some services. I mean, Volvo had this service. I'm not actually sure if they're still still doing it, but they would deliver to your car, so the person would have access to your trunk, and you know they could actually just put it instead of bringing it to your work, hmm. bringing it to your house, take they it. bring it to your car. What a great idea! They, oh, yeah, yeah, they already know where your car is. They stick it in your trunk, and you know that's fine if someone has access to your trunk. Yeah, and then you just drive home with it. So, like you know, it mobile. Phone, you know, mobile phones, smart devices, the you know GPS data, remote access. Those technologies open some doors for some really neat, efficient solutions. To and and they're usually focused on just trying to use the trips that we already take mm-hmm. and you know take advantage. You have a lot of extra room in your car, yeah. Um, so you know, if 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 you can take advantage of that, that's already going to be. That trip's already going to be made. You know how can we exploit that with with the information and technology that we have, and we can. And it you know requires some some development of of, of neat logistics systems, but um, we're training people to do that, and and so I think you'll see a lot of innovation in that space. There's a lot of of startups trying to trying to work in that space right now.
2: It's good to know, Anne, and it's good to know that you're on the case because mm. the rest of us would just you know. Be surprised by all of this in ten years Mm -hmm. when no trucks can make it through the city. Well, we appreciate your time and your energy and your work. Keep it up, and we'll have you back uh, as as your research progresses there at the Supply Chain Transportation and Logistics Center for the University of Washington and Goodchild. We thank you very much. This is the Matt Townsend show. Stick with us.
3: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play
2: ball, play ball folks, and if you play ball, you got to play fair. Uh, Terry's
3: been doing some research about parents that apparently have a little cheating problem. So, the Wall Street Journal has this article. It's entitled "Why Do Parents Cheat at Family Board Games?" Now, is this? Is I didn't know this was a big thing. Well, so there's this effort to distract your child from the technology. Yeah. Get them away from the phones and the yeah. tablets, computers. And so parents have been purchasing board games they right. figure w- we'll teach them some strategy they can play some games it's fun it's, it's, it's be more lots interactive of fun, right? there's been a twenty seven percent growth in board game sales from 2015 last year it hit 2 point9 billion according to the whatever marketing group is focused on board games a far outp- outpacing sales growth for all toys yeah Right, So a big focus wow. on – and if you go look, there's all kinds of board games. Yeah, yeah. Varieties everywhere, online. There's all kinds of companies that m- try to make unique games uh-huh. and, and for all age groups. But it says um, – here it says the downside to the old-fashioned family time is the tedium of some of these board games that your five- and six-year-old are at their level to play. Right, right. right. Like a Candy Land, yeah. Shoots of Ladders, those Nightmare. kind of games. It says your kid almost gets to the end and then they draw that card that sends them all the way back down to the start, (laughs) says Ryan O'Connor of Deerfield, New Hampshire. He's a father of five and six-year-old daughters. He goes, I've got things to do, like, you know, make them dinner. I've got to (laughs) go. Yeah, I got, I mean, people to see. He goes, that's why parents are palming cards, strategically adding pieces when their children aren't looking and sometimes outright lying. sure. Not without irony, some parents have used technology to make games go faster. Um... Data analyst Ethan Markowitz employed statistical analysis to figure out a more efficient way of hastening shoots and ladders. <laughs> Finding the end of that game. I don't like that yeah. game myself. After one too many mind-numbing games, he goes, just like a senior citizen at the bingo parlor, my son is hooked. <laughs> it's like an all-you-can-eat salad bar he wrote this on his own blog detailing his finding is all we do is spin move spin move until my son performs his victory dance or if i'm unlucky enough to actually win the game he demands a rematch right because he can't stand to lose so he's a data analyst so he went and looked at at shoots and ladders there are nine ladders and ten shoots which means a bias towards losing because the shoots send you back down to the bottom right, of the exactly. board, right? So he programmed a simulation of ten thousand two player games which showed the dreariness could last as many as one hundred forty six turns. His solution was to tape a new ladder to the board between space forty seven and seventy two. Oh he that, invented a ladder. Yeah, that lowered the lo- the longest game to only one hundred and ten moves. Wow. Right. Geez. Barry Wise, a father, set out to help preserve uh, the sanity of parents with his own data analysis, suggesting eliminating the longest shoot spanning eighty-seven or space, space eighty-seven to twenty-four. So they're they're what? taking the kids' game and they're trying to figure out how can I do this Little so the cheat. kid doesn't notice. You know? Why why wouldn't you just get another game? Okay, so Candyland. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> The guy, the 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 one of the two men we just talked about, recommend Candyland with its 3.4% chance of running longer than 75 moves. Okay. Right? How about Legos? He goes, also, you have to eliminate Play the rule of sending pieces backwards in Candyland. Yeah. It's such demoralizing to the parent when you're like, ah,
4: don't no. go back to the gummy,
3: gummy <laughs> drop road or whatever it's called. So Jennifer Hogan-Jones of Wichita, Kansas, yeah. he, again, more parents, more, cheating. Yeah. She argued on board games her her she has a blog apparently about board games but she says purposeful losing for your child right she says that children like her daughter need to learn how to handle disappointment the plan is to prepare her for losing in life so in 15 years she won't throw a hissy fit and slam the door when she loses out on something at the yeah, office that's a good point so she's like we're
2: we're we're, 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 we're helping our children kids, yeah.
3: board parents are using a wide variety of tactics to bring their family games like Monopoly and UNO to a close as quick as possible, including palming cards, adding pieces when the kids aren't looking. Uh, they talk about um, how like the, the five and 6 <laughs> year olds, it's kind of set up because as they're holding their cards yeah. in a card game, they tend to look away and get distracted yeah. and tip their cards. And so the parents can look and see what if it's UNO, they can, you can see yeah. the color and you can like manipulate it so that you win. <laughs> just to end it because you got things to do and then you you served your time right you help you played with your
2: kids but i mean I, I guess are we missing the point it seems like we're missing the point yes because but, or maybe what you could do is you could just say we'll go for a time limit you could just you could set a that. timer and our we have 40 minutes for game time and that might be a quarter of a shoots and ladder game right because, you know, they run easily into the three hours. Now,
3: what we do is we'll set a time limit and then we'll, we'll also point out there's you can't get mad. You can't pout. Mm-hmm. This is the time we have to play. Yeah. We get, he's like all all on board till you hit that time. And he's like, no, we can't stop. You know, he goes. <laughs> no, hey.
2: That's that. You know what else you do is you give your kid a Benadryl.
3: <laughs>
2: then you play the board game. Drug your children. It's another this way to is do this it. is
3: the coach 's approach here today, yeah, um, also they talk about here that uh, Hasbro created a new monopoly version that encouraged cheating only in this case to win right so that 's the whole point is you figure you 're going to win, so prompted by the late two thousand and seventeen survey of customers, Hasbro plans to create a cheater's version. It's out on the market right now, I believe. About half of the respondents admitted to duplicity while playing the real estate game. He goes, we were quite surprised it was that high, that there's that many people half cheating. Half are cheating. Some marketing executives from Hasbro. The, uh, the new edition will reward players who can, say, move a rival's piece without notice or collect rent of an opponent's property. Yeah. Like when you tell someone, oh, I own that, and they just give you rent, you're like, all right, and you get bonus points for cheating. Take that. (laughs) Wow, a a cheater's
2: version. It seems like we're maybe missing the point of all of this. It used to be that you had nothing else to do, so you would play these games, and they were just fun forever because you could talk and relate. Now it's like we play them because we feel like we should.
3: But we're really trying to just get through it so we can get to what we really want to do, But Netflix. as a parent who has been stuck in the never-ending cycle of shoots and ladders yeah. or in Candyland where you get towards the end and you have like five or six spaces left. Right. And so you can truly only move if you get that color. Yeah. You draw that from the cart. But then when you draw the mushroom – the uh, I keep calling it mushrooms – but the uh, gummy bear or gummy drop yeah. and you have to drop like 40 spaces back, the game never ends. It it is, and the, it's like, come on, let's just end this. Let's do something fast. That's why tic tac toe is good because yeah. there's an end. Uh-huh. It just seems like the games are set up to never end. Connect
2: but. four. Mm-hmm. That's a great game because you that goes fast, right? And you can lose really easily on that game. You just you just keep you just keep you know not seeing the big mistakes. Wow, okay, parents, what are we doing to our kids for heaven's sakes? Maybe we ought to just find the joy in just being there, set some rules, set some time limits, and then I guess cheat. (laughs) It's just what you got to do sometimes. Up next, we'll be talking about crucial accountability, what to do when you miss a deadline, when you violate rules, when you break a promise, how to handle it. Um, Up next, awesome interview with Joseph Granny. This is The Matt Townsend Show. What to do with those missed deadlines, violated rules, and broken promises? We all want the people around us, our friends, coworkers, family members, to be accountable. But how can we deal uh, with violated expectations? in a way that actually solves the problem without harming the relationship. Joseph Grenny is a New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker, and leading social scientist for business performance. And uh, we had him here not long ago to speak with us about the, his New York Times best-selling book, Crucial Accountability. In that interview, I asked, is it human nature to let other people uh, or for people to let other people down?
1: It is. Stuff happens. You know, sometimes it's because we have expectations that we didn't set appropriately, sometimes it's because they fall short. But sort of the nature of life is that we're going to let each other down now and again. So the, the real issue is how do we deal with those in the moments, not whether or not they're going to occur.
2: Yeah. And so is that is that what you write about in the book Crucial Accountability?
1: Well, we kinda came at it from a different direction. We were looking for what we called moments of disproportionate influence. We wondered are there just a few moments that make the biggest difference in either accelerating intimacy in a relationship, creating connection and trust, or creating division and, uh, and disconnection. Hmm. And as we started looking for those kind of moments, we found that those are moments when people disagree or disappoint. Those are the two big categories. And it turns out how people handle those moments can literally become a trust accelerator, it can actually profoundly deepen the relationship rather than become divisive. So we tend to fear these moments when, in fact, they're the moments of greatest opportunity if we know how to handle them. Oh,
2: interesting. So you we, and, and we just kind of have a normal conversation, we're having a normal experience, and then all of a sudden we get to a, a choice point, really, where it's either going where we might disagree or disappoint, and that's a really important moment because it could either drive us to intimacy, I guess you're saying, or, you know, send us on to— the great, you know, MMA fight down.
1: <laughs> yeah, and our, our tendency, particularly, you know, in the, in, the, in the mountain West here, and I know we've got a, an international audience here as well, but in a variety of cultures, our tendency in those moments is towards silence. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, we just finished a study with about uh, 4,000 subjects across the world. We asked them, what's in your fault? So do you have something that's just been sort of festering in silence for a long time? You've been biting your lip and putting up with it forever and ever. And if you had a magic wand and could open that vault and just let something out, if you could say one thing to one person with absolutely no fear of consequences, because that's what the magic wand's going to do for you, who would you say it to and what would you say? And my goodness, Matt, (laughs) it was just, uh, it was excruciating reading through these thousands of responses. Uh, particularly when we found out people that have been struggling with their husband or wife, with a boss, with a colleague. So one person described how the person in the cubicle next to her apparently, she believes, has a cat that urinates on her purse or shoes or something like that and creates (laughs) this awful stench. And this individual has been living with this horrible odor for four and a half years (laughs) and saying nothing about it.
2: Oh man!
1: So when we ask people to just sort of open the vault for a moment, They talked about disagreements and disappointments and frustrations and concerns that they had been agonizing with. And here's the point. They seem to believe that silence is really silent when, in fact, it isn't. Silence is often incredibly noisy because if you aren't talking out your concerns, you're acting them out. You're avoiding people. You're acting resentful. You're gossiping. It is showing up in today's relationship. So that's why these moments make such a big difference, because if you choose not to address them in an effective way, they are causing incredible dysfunction and pain.
2: Wow. And and yet uh, this woman could keep it for four and a half years. I mean, really, you you unleash the Kraken in that research because you've got <laughs> you've got people talking. I bet. I mean, is I, I guess it feels good for them to release it and be able to say it. But none of those people in the, in, still knew how to go home and really say it. Right. Yeah, they they yeah, didn't the know how to go deal like with that
1: it. Or, yeah. When, when you're answering a survey or talking to others, it's it's sort of like a drug. Uh, it, you know, it temporarily reduces the symptoms, but it really doesn't solve the problem sometimes. So yeah. It's like taking a pain reliever. And, uh, and oftentimes gossip serves that sort of purpose, that it's a it's a temporary anesthetic, but it really doesn't deal with the issue.
2: Huh. So w- what when we and we have these issues and. Whether we act on them or whether we talk about them or not, they're, they're you're saying they're coming out. They're going to be acted out. But you could see people that would you know have an issue with their spouse and have it for thirty years and never yeah.
1: get it out. Yeah, and that's that's ex- that's exactly what the study showed. That you know we've got people that are saying you know I, I I'd really like to end my relationship with my loved one. I and they would list these grievances that they had been accumulating for decades frequently. And, you know, they probably had attempted to bring them up, but probably not in a particularly effective way, or perhaps the other person wasn't receptive to it. But right now what they're doing is just harboring and harboring and building and building, and silence isn't silent. Right. We think we're getting away with not approaching these really vulnerable conversations, and we aren't. We're paying a price every single day.
2: You, you have a name for what you call the first 30 seconds of a, of a difficult conversation or an accountability conversation. You call it the hazardous half minute. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. Well, this, this was something remarkable in our research. So as we started finding that these few moments, I mean, it's just a few minutes a week when we have to talk about something emotionally or intellectually tender to us and, and vulnerable – we, we found that those few moments made such an enormous difference in organizational performance in our personal life, so we began to put a microscope on them and, and see how people who deal with them well address things differently. What are the skills, what are the learnable practices that they use? and The remarkable thing, Matt, was that we found that you could predict how a conversation with it would end with about ninety seven percent precision by watching just the first thirty seconds of it. Huh. So, how people behave in those thirty seconds disproportionately affects even the next hour and uh, and how the relation, how the conversation would come out now now, I need to qualify this We, we spent about ten thousand hours observing uh, people in these moments, and what i 'm not suggesting is that if you use the skills appropriately, then everyone 's going to agree with you and they 'll magically change and give you everything that you want in your right life. that isn 't true. What I am suggesting is. You'll get to the end of this conversation, and number one, you will be heard. You'll be able to get your point across. And number two, you'll you you'll have an effect on the relationship that is generally positive. So if you handle these first 30 seconds, the hazardous half-minute, well, there are just a few things you have to do. Uh, that's the key to the rest of
2: it. Interesting, and, and you're going to get it out. It doesn't mean it's going to be idyllic, but you, you are going to get your information out. You're going to have, be more likely to be heard, and you're more likely to be, um, to what? To get some closure.
1: Yeah, to have an influence. Yeah. That's that's all you can ask for. Yeah. So, Because, yeah. you know, the truth is, we, we come into these conversations with partial truth anyway. Right. Uh, we aren't the possessor of all wisdom, and so you shouldn't hope that the whole conversation is going to move your direction at the end, or else your attitude is wrong. You need to be coming in curious and open because if you aren't, then you'll help shut the other person down as well. Yeah. So your goal ought to be able to listen as well as you're expressing yourself, and perhaps see things at least somewhat differently by the time you're done.
2: That again was Joseph Grenny, uh, author of the best-selling book Crucial Accountability. Great insight into how to uh, to keep our our understanding alive and, and our influence alive with other people. Man, it's not easy being human, but it could be a lot easier if you would just spend a little time trying to understand the other. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Good morning, friends. Happy Friday to you. Yes, you've done it another another week. You made it. We're so proud of you. And now you can get ready for the weekend, unless, of course, you work on the weekends. Hmm. Then you've just made it however far into your
3: week you've made it. Right. Just to speak, maybe so. your weekend will start on Tuesday. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you never get a weekend. Maybe you just skip it and keep moving. Yeah,
2: that's just kind of how life works. And then tomorrow is Saturday and we start it all again. Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of interesting stuff. Can you take and accept a compliment? When somebody gives you a compliment, do you accept it very well or do you like, ah, oh, yeah? I find it very difficult. I do too. You're just saying that. You just, you're just saying that because you have to. You know, you're my boss. You're my Or,
3: or the other side is, What do you want? (laughs) Why are you buttering me
2: up? Yeah, you must be after something. So we'll be speaking with an expert about uh, why it's so hard to accept a compliment. And interestingly, people that can't accept compliments may have something um, similar with those people that are into conspiracy theories. Right. It's kind of a weird little parallel. The truth is out there, Matt. It's out there. It's just I don't trust – Anybody that's giving it to me. I don't trust
3: the sources. The other side is the the age-old, like, managerial tip. Yeah, trick. I took some management classes when I worked for other companies, and they tell you when you're going to criticize someone, lead with a compliment. Sandwich it. Sandwich it. Yeah. Tell them the good, then the bad, then the good. Yeah, you lead them, and you you lead them with something good, and you leave them with something good, and the middle is what you're actually there to talk to them about. So you have two empty compliments and then, like, your actual criticism.
2: See, that's the problem. You've learned this technique. So now you don't trust it when we tell you you're really great. You have stuff to work on. But. but you're really great. (laughs) You don't trust that. No. No. Which is funny because it's always fun to know that you took management courses and then to watch you manage everyone. Because you do a great job managing people. I also don't listen to most of what those
3: uh, classes told me.
2: You really are an incredible manager. There are some things you need to work on. Right. And, again, you really rock the management world. There you go. That was a good demonstration of what we were just talking about. You are very welcome. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be talking about uh, can you accept a compliment or not. By the way, maybe- I also don't like role-playing, so— Maybe that's something. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know anybody that's like, I want to do the role play. I mean, it's very uh, rare. It's so awkward. It's, it's a great joke when I do public speaking to say, let's do a role play. And then you get this look in everyone's eyes. Yeah, like, no. Don't make me do it. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, so uh, have you ever heard of uh, Mayor Rudy Giul- Giuliani? I have. Ultimate compliment has been now been paid to Mr. Giuliani. Uh-oh. He is being brought on to the defense team of the president of the United States.
3: After he searched for... Thirty other lawyers who said no,
2: and after mainly
3: out of conflicts of interest because there's so many people involved in this, and that's what they all say. But the
2: the reality is,
3: he's a really tough person to defend, yeah, because you can't get him to be quiet. Well, there's so many possible things that have been done, yeah, and then there's so many situations where he doesn't listen to anybody.
2: So then he brings in Giuliani, who he's already rejected in a variety of other job opportunities. (laughs) He was. I think he was supposed to fix the internet too. At one yeah, point. he was going to change the interweb. Yeah, and our, build our, the whole interweb f-
3: infrastructure. Yeah, at least the security end of it.
2: Yeah, and everybody went. Mm, what? Well, because when you think internet security, mm. you think Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Exactly. <laughs> they just kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, he did. He is an inc- He changed New York as a mayor. He really did yeah. a great job. Cleaned it up. Made it safer. He's, a, he's
3: America's mayor. Just he, ask him. He'll tell you. <laughs> It's on his business card. It's on his business card. America's mayor.
2: Well, uh, so he's got a new job with the president um, as his on his defense
3: team. He's been seen awesome. at Mar-a-Lago. He's down there hanging out with the president. Hasn't everybody? Yeah, well, it's what happens. I feel bad. Like, we've never been invited to Mar-a-Lago.
2: Well... You have to know the people to know. Yeah, you do. Well, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to?
3: Russia has claimed that Donald Trump extended a warm invitation to Vladimir Putin to visit him at the White House and offered to visit Russia after the Russian leader's U.S. trip. According to Russian Foreign Minister uh, Sergei Lavrov, uh, Trump said, We proceed from the fact that the U.S. president in a telephone conversation made such an invitation – said he would be glad to see Putin in the White House, would then be glad to meet on a reciprocal visit. Hmm. So they're inviting him to Russia. Uh, Putin's like, I'm already in the White House. R- Russia has also claimed that it has told the U.S. where in Syria it couldn't bomb ahead of last week's airstrikes on the country. Russian foreign minister oh. again said there was contact between the Kremlin and Washington before last weekend strikes by France and the U.K. and the U.S., and that the strikes avoided the red lines set out by Russia. Oh so yeah. yeah. Either, either you'll go with the narrative that uh, the U.S. is coordinating with Russia because mm-hmm. I mean we're not attacking them; we're going after Syria, right? Or Russia is dictating our defense policy now. Which yeah. way do you want to take that story? <laughs>
2: no, no wonder. No wonder uh, Nikki Haley had to pull it back a yeah. bit. Yeah. Because
3: she didn't know that we were actually. Well, apparently the, nar- the narrative Russia on that, where she goes on, she goes on the Sunday political show and says one thing, and then the next day Trump's like, no, we're not doing that. And then it ends up someone says she was confused. Yeah, she's and then, confused. You
1: know, I'm not confused.
3: What, what seems to have happened is the paperwork went out to everybody but Mr. Trump. No one informed the president as to what they were doing. And so when the president saw it on TV, he's like, we're not doing that. And everyone's like, uh... Did he not get the memo? Did anyone give him the memo? So. You would think the memo actually would originate with Mr. Trump. You would think.
8: That's, but that's old school.
3: As he says, he hires good managers to do their jobs. That's right. So that he's not involved. Yeah. And, and then Until he wants to be. And then he gets involved. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein reportedly told President Trump last week that he's not a target of any part of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Sources tell Bloomberg News. uh, Ronstein says that as a White House meeting last Thursday, which helped temper the president's desire to remove Rosenstein or Mueller, according to the report. After the meeting, Trump reportedly told his aides that it was not the right time to fire either because, you know, I'm not a target of the investigation. A source also told Bloomberg that Trump is not a target of the investigation now, but could still be at some point in the future. Okay. Let's get this over
2: with. That is what uh, Mr. Giuliani's coming in to do, is to yes. expedite this thing, because he can talk Mueller talk, and he can talk Trump talk. Wow. He's like a translator. Okay.
3: He's he's bilingual. He's bilingual. That's great. He's from New York. He is. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, an office of the comptroller of the currency, could announce as early as Friday, and I believe they already have. Let me, let me check my AP news feed. It's my phone. Uh, Wells Fargo hit with $1 billion fine for... Would you say auto loan and mortgage abuse? Yeah. So, uh, well, by they... the way,
2: only a billion dollars? Just a billion. It's one of the biggest scandals in corporate
3: America. So, last year, the company apologized for forcing as many as 570,000 customers into purchasing unnecessary car insurance. And said after conducting an internal review, it discovered that uh, 20,000 or so of those clients may have defaulted on their car loans and had their vehicles repossessed because of the insurance Hmm. cost. Wells Fargo's also announced in October that some mortgage borrowers were charged after missing a deadline to lock in interest rates, even though the delay was caused by the company and not the customers. Yeah. And so because of those issues, a billion-dollar fine. Wow. Which is great because since uh, Mick Mulvaney took over the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, this is, I think, the only action they've taken. Yeah, but it was a billion dollar action.
2: So, they, they did financially. T- they, they've they've done. It's like doing five
3: hundred actions. But, but like Equifax, <laughs> yeah, data breaches, oh. they've done nothing, nothing with those. They've nothing. just let those go. And he sat before Congress a couple weeks ago yeah. and said, "Yeah, you know, we're looking at them." Oh, brother. Okay. Finally, police in Georgia shared a security camera footage of a GameStop store burglar who tried to conceal his face with an unusual disguise. What? A clear plastic wrapper.
2: So, okay. So he's trying to disguise his face and he used a clear wrapper. Yes. A,
3: hard to breathe. Yes. Be uh, clear. You can see right through it. The police department posted Oops. the video to Facebook showing security camera footage from Thursday night's burglary. The video showed the male suspect wearing the plastic wrapper from a package of bottled water over his head, completely failing to hide his face with the clear plastic. Police are asking members of the public for help in identifying the crafty disguised gent, as they called <laughs> him. You can uh, help him catch whatever. if you can. St- it goes, you can help us catch him once you stop laughing, the police said. Well,
2: I mean, maybe what he thought, is that he? it was only clear from his view.
3: Right. Maybe it obscured his face. No, it didn't. If you see the video, you're like, I can totally pull that guy out of a lounge. I
2: mean, all you'd have to do is just overlook the Dasani label on his forehead. Exactly. And then you know exactly what he looks like. Brother. I don't know what's going on with these criminals nowadays. They're just not using their head anymore. Becca, it's not... It's not good.
5: It's not... It's really not.
2: I hope it's not like a millennial thing. Oh,
5: well, that could be.
6: That's that's a really good point.
2: I don't know. It does, I don't want to blame it on millennials, but everybody everything gets blamed on millennials nowadays.
6: Well, nobody's offering trophies for being able to obscure your face during a burglary. So
2: I mean, what happened to the old ski mask? Yeah. He probably didn't have time to get one. Mm. He was too busy buying water, apparently. <laughs> <Rough>. <laughs> You know, that's how it goes. Hey, up next, we're going to talk about to why you can't accept a compliment. So think about it. Are you very good at accepting compliments? Do you feel like, yeah, uh, eh, they don't know me. If they really knew me, they wouldn't compliment me. We'll be getting into that little topic up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. For many, uh, when you compliment them or when you congratulate them on something they do really well, it's really hard for them. They feel like it's awkward. They resent it. They don't feel like it's, you know, it's heartfelt. It's just, it's just hard for some to, to accept a compliment. So here to talk to us about why so many struggle with it and what we can do about it is uh, Dr. Catherine Hawley. She's a professor of philosophy and uh, in the Department of Philosophy at St. Andrews University in Scotland. She's also a member of the board of the St. Andrews Center for Exoplanet Science. And her main areas of expertise are ethics uh, and epistemology of trust, promising um, and competence. And uh, she's here to talk with us today, Catherine. Thank you so much for being with us today.
4: Hi. Good morning. What good is to be here.
2: what? Why is it so hard for so many to um, actually receive a compliment and and accept the compliments they're given?
4: That's a great question. I think. I mean, it can vary from person to person, but sometimes I think it's because. People have had bad experiences in the past, so maybe they've had compliments from people who turned out just to be trying to, to get something from them or to kind of mislead them or, to, or to, to treat them badly in the end. Sometimes it's because people lack confidence in themselves. They think they don't really deserve compliments, so that if someone's trying to give them a compliment, it shows that there must be, there must be some underlying motive or something bad going on. But I think sometimes also it's because you know, we receive compliments and it makes us think, oh, now I really have to do well in the future. Or, you know, It makes us worry about letting people down later on because now the expectations are even higher. That's
2: so true. And um, it, some of this goes back to the, the theory of imposter theory that we've heard many express. Um, in fact, uh, uh, Maya Angelou is a, a Nobel laureate here in the um, United States – or a, a – I think she was a, maybe not a Nobel uh-huh. laureate, but she um, she. No, I think you was Yeah, I think she was, and she. But she always talked about every time she'd release a new book, um, and people would come up and talk to her about it. She always felt like they just don't know me. I mean, if they really knew who yeah. I was, and and she talked about how she feels like an imposter. But teach us about this imposter theory.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's that's amazing, isn't it? That someone could reach such heights of success and fame and be admired by so many people, and yet to still feel that she, you know, she was an imposter, that she didn't really deserve to be where she oh, is. Yeah. Um, so this, yeah, this imposter syndrome is something that really a lot of people seem to experience, even when. Looking at them from the outside, they seem to have success with their professions or family or whatever it is that they're pursuing. Um, They seem like someone who ought to have confidence and to believe in themselves. And yet inside they feel that really they've they've just got where they are through luck or through other people not really noticing that they don't deserve what they have. Um, And so they, they, they find it difficult to accept raised from other people. They think that the time is coming when people are going to realize how inadequate they really are. Mm. And this can cause huge anxiety for people, no matter how successful they are on the outside. Does,
2: because, and I guess this is just human nature in some way, and also how we've been raised and like you, the examples you gave, the people that have given Mm -hmm. us compliments in the past, is it, um, it seems like it, it could actually be debilitating if we take it too far.
4: That's right. So for some people, it causes, it can cause a lot of inner stress and anxiety. Sometimes that leads to people giving things up, thinking, "Well, this is just not for me," you know. Even though I've, you know, I've got good grades in college, or I've been offered this good job, I'm not really good enough for it, so I won't pursue it. Other times, people do pursue professional success despite these feelings. But what it can lead to is a kind of perfectionism and. You know, crazy amounts of hard work because they feel like they always have to make more effort than other people in order to, to overcome this, this feeling of being an imposter. Mm. And either way, that's, that's bad for people's well-being and happiness. It makes it difficult to, for them to enjoy the success that they've earned.
2: And this is even against the data that they can see. So even if they can see data that shows how good their success is, they still don't believe the data.
4: Yeah, that's right. So they may, yeah, like they're getting, as I say, getting good grades in school or in college or maybe they've been offered a promotion or offered a great job that they've, they've always dreamed of or people are telling them that they've done well. They've even won a Nobel Prize in that case. Yeah. Um, you know, so this is people who are getting, yeah, the external credit and praise, and yet they don't, they find it hard to internalize it, to take it within themselves and really believe that they deserve that success and that they're able to continue it into the future. I think that's often key. When we get that kind of praise or we get those external successes, for for some people, for some of us, it can cause us just not to sit back and enjoy that, but just to worry about what's coming down the line. People are going to expect even more of us. Are we really going to be able to live up to this great image other people seem to have of us when we don't Mm. feel like that's what we deserve inside?
2: And you, in your research, um, you've actually even found, I guess, a correlation between uh, the um, the one that can't take the compliment and the imposter theory or syndrome mm-hmm. member and conspiracy theorists.
4: Well, that's right. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to overplay this. It's not that everyone who has imposter syndrome is also a conspiracy theorist, or vice versa. Um, you know, these can these can be different for different people. But I it did I did find that there was some in an interesting way, both of them involve a kind of distrust, right? So the person who has imposter syndrome distrusts the compliments and the praise that she's receiving, right? She thinks that other people are in some way misleading her, or maybe they don't really know what they're talking about. She doesn't, she doesn't believe what other people say about her being smart or, or good at her job. And there's a kind of similarity there to the way that Someone who believes in conspiracy theories also distrusts what's in the mainstream media or what experts or scientists or government are saying. They think that uh, these official sources of information are misleading them or that they don't really know what's going on. So although they can feel different from the inside, the imposter syndrome person is looking inwards and feeling bad about herself, whereas someone who believes in conspiracy theories is often looking outwards and feeling bad about the government or about how things are run. But in, so there's that difference between them, but the similarity is that they both involve distrusting what other people say. And that's, that strikes me as an interesting connection between them.
2: Absolutely. And then um, you make a really good point in your article on in Psychology Today about the fact that mm-hmm. if, we di- if we distrust external sources, then um, whether it's an imposter th- syndrome or a conspiracy mm-hmm. theorist, um, it, then external people can't necessarily convince you otherwise so it, it almost makes it useless to try to tell somebody they're great if they won't hear it
4: yeah that's right in both cases so so we see with conspiracy theorists if you if you're trying to talk them out of their view whatever evidence you can come up with they'll say "Aha." That's just what they want you to think, you know, <laughs> yeah, that in a right. way that the, the evidence that we, that other people think goes against the conspiracy theory is just more grist to their mill. That's, that's what they would expect to see. And something like that with imposter syndrome as well, and again, I don't want to say they're exactly the same thing, but there's a similar pattern. So someone with imposter syndrome, if they, if they confess to you that they feel bad about themselves or they don't really think they deserve their success, if you just can say in return, no, come on, you're great, look at your grades, look at that job offer you had, that doesn't help them, really, because they already are discounting that kind of evidence. They're thinking of that as somehow mistaken or misleading. And so it's, it is quite hard to know how to get through to to people who feel this way. I mean, some of us will have experience with people in our family or friends or, or or people at work who struggle to believe in themselves. And just telling them to believe in themselves doesn't, doesn't really cut it. That's, that's, that's the kind of thing that they're used to hearing, and they're used to writing that off as not really helpful.
2: That's so true. So um, in your research and in your work, what have you found works? What, what can we do that would actually make a difference with somebody that won't accept a compliment?
4: Yeah, well, that's a great question because that's I think it's it's important to see that it comes to all of us, right? This is a problem for the person who's in the situation, but all of us should be thinking about what what can we do to help people around us who feel this way. And um, what my view is that it's really got to be about actions, not just words, right? So it's if if you're receiving if someone's receiving compliments, if someone's telling them they're doing a great job, or they're you know they're giving them compliments on their appearance or whatever it might be but they don't seem to be treating them well in other ways, then that's when comp- compliments are difficult to accept. I think if you want to make someone feel confident about themselves, to feel good about their abilities, their talents, um, then you have to show that with what you do by trusting them, giving them things that you, you, you trust them to do, by not checking up on them the whole time, by you know, showing through what you do as well as through what you say that you have faith in them. And I think in the end, you know, if anything can help, Then that's what it's going to be. It's actually acting out the compliments as well as just saying them.
2: That's so true. We're speaking with Catherine Hawley, who is a PhD in the Department of Philosophy at St. Andrews University in Scotland. She's also um, an expert in the ethics and epistemology of trust, promising, and competence, uh, and uh, wrote a wonderful article in Psychology Today about why can't you accept uh, a compliment. And we're talking to her about that research. Um, Catherine, one of the things, I mean, it seems like uh, the, the idea is maybe we are all too used to using words to try to convey trust um, and, and, you know, we make promises, but we don't follow through on them. And, and you're saying in the end, it might really be the, the best indicator for many might just be your, your long-term actions on the issue, not just your words.
4: I think that's right. So, when, when, so again, there's a different story for different people, but often when people can't accept compliments, it's exactly because in the past they've had bad experiences where maybe someone said nice things to them but then treated them badly. And so you come to associate being complimented with, with some kind of shallow motive or something bad going on behind the scenes. And so if you're dealing with someone who's in that situation who's maybe had bad experiences in the past, I think, yeah, really, the key thing that you can do to help them is to show through what you do and over the longer term that you really do trust them. That you, you know, you're you don't you're not just saying nice things or trying to compliment them to make them feel happy or feel good about themselves. You really are relying upon them and and treating them as someone who's who's a capable person who can be trusted to get on with them, to begin get, to get on with their responsibilities. And I think that's. In the end, that's what makes the most difference to people is seeing how what we do, not just what we say. What
2: can I do um, if I personally have you know self identified as uh, somebody maybe with imposter th- syndrome that mm-hmm. that really has a hard time accepting a compliment, what can I do to actually maybe cognitively think through it better and 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 maybe trust more what's being said
4: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are no easy solutions here, Um, but but some advice that's often given to people is, so, so one thing is to try and talk about it. I mean, that can be difficult because if you feel like you're in a job that you don't really deserve or you're at college and you don't really deserve to be there, it can be scary to open up about that to somebody But almost always, when people do open up, they find that other people feel in similar ways. And it can be, as you said, you started off the section talking about Maya Angelou and her feeling like an imposter. And I think finding out how common this is, how many people feel worried about this, can actually be quite helpful to people. You realize, oh, it's not just me, right? There are other people that are in this situation. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that works for some people, not for everybody, but is to... um, think about what advice you would give you yourself if you were a friend of yourself, if you see what I mean. So yeah. kind of step outside of yourself and think, well, what would other people be advising me here? You know, and that, that can be helpful. to Take a little bit of distance from your situation and think, well, I should recognize, you know, that if, if one of my friends were saying this to me, I would be trying to talk them out of it. I wouldn't be going along with it. So taking that, yeah, having a bit of distance can help. But also I think, And again, this is something for all of us, is to bear in mind that if you're feeling bad about yourself, right, sometimes that's not because of anything that you've done or anything that you can do about thinking differently. It can sometimes be because you're in a difficult situation. Maybe there's some bullying going on in your workplace or just an unsupportive environment or a difficult situation in your life. And sometimes recognizing that these feelings come from outside can be be helpful as well, because otherwise people get trapped into a situation where they feel bad about themselves, and then they feel guilty for feeling bad about themselves, and then they feel bad about not being able to fix themselves, and that's just kind of going, making things worse and worse. So stepping outside of yourself a little bit and recognizing that sometimes bad feelings come from being in a difficult environment, I think that that can be helpful.
2: Yeah, it can go a long way, especially to, I mean, sometimes maybe just keeping top of mind that you tend to have this habit i mean it just being aware Mm -hmm. that you have Mm -hmm. the habit of discounting compliments just that might be enough to start helping you you know evaluate and look for other data
4: i think that's right so knowing that there is something called imposter syndrome knowing that other people feel this way knowing that your friends would kind of tell you to snap out of it if they heard you thinking this way yeah remembering this is a pattern of thought that you can slip into that can that can be a helpful thing um, just recognising that's that's the imposter syndrome speaking again, you know, and thinking about it as something that you can you can try and push back against. That that, that can often work for people.
2: Do you think? Um, how do you think we're doing at just having a, having dialogue on this issue? It seems like we we really don't talk about this this angle of life, or and we also don't talk about trust and promises and promise breaking and the comp and competency mm-hmm. as a way of trust. We don't talk about that as much as. It seems like we probably should, just in the general conversation.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we sometimes there are times when we have these conversations about trusting government or trusting the banks or trusting big corporations, and those are important issues as well. But it's also important, you know, with with the people that we deal with day-to-day, thinking about not just who can I trust, but how can I be a trustworthy person, or how can I be someone who other people can rely upon? How can I be someone who keeps her promises? Um, and I think thinking about that can be helpful when we're thinking about what commitments to take on, whether how how to avoid being overcommitted in our lives. I think sometimes we, when we think of distrust and we think of untrustworthy people, we think of kind of mean people who are trying to rip us off. But often we fall into being untrustworthy just by accident, by just having too much to do, too many too many balls in the air, too many plates to spin, and we end up letting people down through trying to be helpful. And I think that's something we could talk more about, is thinking about how sometimes the most trustworthy thing to do, the thing that will help other people most, is actually to say no from time to time and just say, no, I just have enough on my plates already. I can't take on something else. Mm. Um, and that, that I think, can be difficult to hear, but it's, it's an important conversation for us to be having.
2: But And it's, it's interesting, because we do talk a lot more too, uh about credentials and um, you know, degrees mm-hmm. and going to the best schools as kind of key traits that we need to possess or or things that we need to have. But trustworthiness is kind of seems old fashioned to many.
4: Yeah, I know, but without it, none of those other things mean value. Right, yeah. Um Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we, you know, there are a lot of smart people about the place and a lot of well-educated people. But um, by itself, that's not enough. If you think about who, who are the people that you want to have in your life, who are the people that you want to be working with, working for, um, then trustworthiness is really crucial to that. Because you know, if you don't have trust in a relationship, whatever other wonderful things are are going on, that's you know, you're never going to be able to fully relax into it and really enjoy the relationship, enjoy the company of other people. Um, Trust, I think, is at the heart of of, of most of what we do in society.
2: So true. Well, Catherine, we we appreciate you and uh, your great research there at St. Andrews uh, University in Scotland. Thanks again for being on the show. We know you're uh, you're always willing to be on with us when we, when we can get you. Catherine Holly is her name. Again, a Ph.D. in the Department of Philosophy at St. Andrew's University in Scotland and doing what she can to walk us through trust and her great research on the topic. We'll continue the journey up next to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show helping you be the good in the world.
3: are you, boy? Are you too stupid
1: to
9: do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach.
2: Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Layball! Layball, welcome back, friends. You know, um, so we, we want to grow trust with people, and, and there are ways to know if people trust you. And remember, somebody trusting you or not trusting you, it's not always about you, because sometimes if somebody came from a harder history or, or a hard or difficult past... They may have a harder time trusting anyway, right? But um, there are some truths that I found that uh, I think are kind of universal. They're, they're universal truths that help us to access the hearts of others. And if you want to have more influence where you can help get into people's uh, hearts, where they'll share their heart, well, where they're more open to you, I believe that these truths that we're going to talk about right now um, are, are major ways, doors— That we can open to create a a more trusting environment. First, truth is that people tend to trust others who understand them the most. Doesn't mean you always have to agree, but people, uh, whether you know, people trust those that get them. And we tend to not trust people that don't get us, which is why we're less likely to share more and more of our heart with people that don't seem to handle the little bit we've shared. The fastest way to get people to listen to you is not to keep talking but to try to actually learn the language that they're using, figure out what they're talking about, show that you can understand them from their frame of reference. And um, we use our gut to help us with that. And the more that I sense that you're getting me, that you're understanding me, that you care about what I'm saying, the more likely I am to actually open up and give you more. And if I don't sense that, then I'll I'll probably turn on more of my fight or flight and I'll shut down and I'll have to either freeze and not give you information or flee and run from you or fight you on it. So do the people around you, so as you think about those that you want to influence more, do the people around you feel like you really understand them? Uh, Does the person you're trying to influence sense that you truly understand and care? Just a basic truth, right? Uh, Second truth. Access to the heart. So, if you want to get into someone else's heart and get into understanding them, it must be given to you. It can't be coerced from them. Um, people don't trust people that aren't straightforward or that are, you know, coercive or pushy. Or, um, it, by the way, it doesn't mean you can't get information, but what you've done is you've made getting information the next time even harder human beings have agency we are free agents we have free will which means that we have to know that we can exercise our closeness and our intimacy and closeness and connection with you on our terms so it's always up to me to be able to decide that you can try to take that closeness you can try to demand it you can try to manipulate for it but the minute you do you alter the relationship so if you're trying to influence them before you try to understand them, if you're trying to demand certain things from people, you still may get what you want. But they will also be building a wall between you and them. And it will make it harder and harder to get deeper, more impactful, more connected uh, relationship with that person. So um, your position is great. Your hierarchy, your status is wonderful. Whatever leverage you have – be careful using it if you're going to use it at the expense of the free will or the free agency of another person. The minute you are leveraging anything external to to usurp my agency, you're violating a principle. And when you violate that principle, it doesn't mean you still won't win right now. But what it means is long term, you will lose the relationship. You'll lose my trust with you. Okay. Rule number three, all conversations that we have with other people are identity conversations. You cannot have a talk with another person that doesn't in some way start to impact the identity of, the, of them. There is always looming underneath. Every conversation is the – what I call the identity conversation that is the – every human being has this sense of worth and value. So if you bring up a simple thing like, so are you ever going to get better grades See how inherent in the question is an identity issue. Do you do you do you like being single? Inherent in the question is an identity issue. Um, how much money do you make? Inherent in the question, there is an identity issue going on, right? Are you happy in the marriage? Mm. So, instead of fighting the gen- the generic issue, recognize that underneath every issue, there is also identity being played, right? And, and and in play. And so that's sometimes why you might be arguing one point and not knowing why we can't just get an answer to this question. Like, why are you getting all mad because I brought up your income? It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal because the identity is in play. Or the why is it a big deal that I talk about you being single? Well, because my identity is in play. So do you have compassion For the identity issues that are coming up in those conversations that you're having it's always going to be there and you need to pay attention to that side of the conversation and uh, one more point that we ought to make sure we're always looking at if we really want to build trusting relationships is to recognize that every conversation that we have currently also has a past it has a present and it has a future Right. So every conversation is not just based in some vacuum of just right now. Every word that I use, every 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 concept I think of has a history. Everything has a future and um, how we talk about it today will be impacted by how you have talked about it for years in the past and what you expect to happen in the future you cannot have a conversation today that's not impacted by the past or the future. So make sure that you're you're playing letting that come into play a little bit. And that's why we probably ought not assume we know what anyone means because I haven't been with you through your whole past. I don't know what everything means to you. So when somebody says, "Oh, this movie's so dumb." You don't have to be offended by it. You can just assume that must – okay. there's something about her past and her present she's not liking about this and then get in and explore it and be curious. Find out what what have I missed? And you might find out, well, I just hate these movies like this because you always know how they're going to end up and then they might list the five movies they've seen that ended up the exact same way. Relationships are complicated and so is trust and so is uh, being truthful with one another and we don't need to react. We don't need to – We don't need to hate each other quickly. We just can love each other and make it safe. Just make it safe and recognize that there's a lot more going on that you may be thinking about. Anyway, it's just my idea. It's just a simple little coach's idea. We'll continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. We're going to continue some interviews with uh, Joseph Grenny about uh, his book Crucial Accountability, How to Be Accountable When Things Don't Always Go So Great. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, what are you supposed to do when people around us have missed deadlines, they violated rules, they've broken promises? Whether it's our friends, our coworkers, family members, wherever it is – At some point, we need to have a conversation of accountability and how we can deal with these violated expectations. And so we thought, who could help us with this but Joseph Grenny? He's a New York Times bestselling author, a keynote speaker, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Crucial Accountability. We had him on the show a while back, and we wanted to ask him Um, and actually revisit some of his wonderful points so that we could learn how to do this. Uh, In the interview, I asked him, what should we do before we have an accountability conversation?
1: Well, so there's there's, uh, two sets of things. The first is things you better do before you ever open your mouth. (laughs) And uh, and the the second is what we tend to crave. We just wish that there was a magic script or something. And so I can give some uh, suggestions from what we've seen that's very effective, once you do open your mouth. So, the, the, the first piece really is make sure your own emotions are clear before you open your mouth. We often don't do that. So, yeah. when people let us down, it often triggers a whole ca- cascade of emotions inside of us. And if you don't deal with those, they will govern the outcome of the conversation. You just can't fake it. You, you aren't a good enough actor. So, if you're feeling hurt or diminished or angry or scared, you need to pull aside. You need to process those emotions in a safe and effective way. And the book Crucial Accountability describes some really great strategies that people use for understanding, appreciating, and validating their own emotions. So mm. that's a really critical yeah. piece of first work, and often we don't do that. We no, we not right into trying to fix it.
2: Yeah, we just kind of wing it, don't we? But you don't yeah, wing your emotions yeah. or they'll wing you. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Amen. So so <laughs> yeah. we so we sit down we kind of make sure we're centered we know what our real emotional uh pains are we 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 just want to be aware I guess.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's taking responsibility for your emotions. So if you feel hurt or violated or what have you? own it and take responsibility for it, but validate it and appreciate it. So that, that's real important inner work that has to be done before you open your mouth. And mm. that's often where we go awry.
2: That's good. So once we got our emotions taken care of, then what?
1: All right. So now, now it's time to go public. Now, the challenge is the other person is probably in an emotional, fra- emotionally fragile place too. So we need to be aware of that. There are three things you've got to do in those first 30 seconds. The first has nothing to do with the disappointment that you're wanting to address. So if if they've let you down, we often want to leap right into that as an issue. You need to understand that human beings are hardwired to to scan the environment for threats. So, so just, just a little bit of background on the brain science of this. When you enter a room, even if it's not sort of an emotionally uh, uh, challenging situation, when you enter a room with other people, you are consciously or unconsciously scanning that room for threats. You're, uh, you're, you're aware of, am I dressed right? Am I appropriate or not? Are people going to judge me? And how am I going to feel? Where should I sit? Should I stand? Should I, you know, all of these sort of things are happening in our minds. We're looking for anything that could make us physically or emotionally at risk. The, the same is, is true tenfold uh, during a crucial conversation. When you enter a moment where you feel emotionally vulnerable or some outcome of yours is at risk, the, your sensitivity to any evidence that the other person means you harm or could prosecute an ill intent against you is heightened. Mm. All you have to do to make another person feel unsafe during a crucial conversation is nothing. Yeah. I mean think think about it for a minute. Yeah. If the other person is just stoic and giving off no expression at all, you feel threatened. Totally. And so your first task during a crucial conversation is to generate evidence that the other person is safe with you. Hmm. You have to intentionally and effectively let them know two things. The first is that you care deeply about their interests, concerns, or problems. So you, you have to generate evidence for them that whatever current concerns or fears they've got in this moment, you care about those. Now, this does not mean you're going to take responsibility for those. This does not mean you're going to cave in. This doesn't mean you're going to fix everything for them. All it means is that you care Yeah. and that you, you don't intend them harm. So that's the first thing that you've got to do. We call that creating a condition of mutual purpose. That's great. They need to know that you care about their interests and yours. The second is you have to generate a condition we call mutual respect. They need to know not just that you care about their problems, interests, and concerns, but also that you care about them. Now, this gets especially problematic if they've behaved in a way that you find despicable or right. loathsome. Yeah. If they've harmed you or hurt you or insulted you, it's hard to feel respectful or generate that feeling of respect in those cases. But, but the, the principle here goes back to that first thing, that inner work that you've got to do you've got to deal with your own provocation or judgments and uh, and triggers and get that out of the way so that you can see them as a person worthy of civility and respect. Right. And then generate evidence that you see them that way.
2: Cuz that goes I'm back to your values, you know, is, right? That's your principles. I my general principles would yeah. say I should treat people with respect even if they're yeah. not Yeah, it does. You know, always the nicest people. I I believe in respecting people.
1: And I think those lofty principles get lost in the impulse of the moment,
7: yeah exactly so
1: when, when when something's triggering for us, it's easy to lose it, but I think you're right. that is a fundamental thing that we'd all agree on so yeah. that's our that's our first job.
2: Then we've got to kind of convince them we are we really do care
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right so there there are a lot of ways that we do this I, again we're, we're letting them know we care about their interests we know, we're letting them know that we care about them now now the key here is understanding this isn't a trick or a technique. So a lot of people say, great, well, so what do I do? I smile and and I let them know, hey, I mean, you no harm, and then I move on, right? Right. No.
2: That's (laughs) what everyone's thinking, right?
1: Yes. The the way you'll know you're done with step one is you'll see them exhale. Their shoulders will relax. They'll look like they're finally a little bit open uh, to the conversation. As soon as you see that body language that says, okay, I think they feel safe, then you're ready to proceed to step two. Until you see that you're not ready. Yeah, until they relax. Right, so yeah. this isn't about just delivering a script, right. precisely.
2: That's good. What? So what's step two? Once we can get there, we've got about two minutes.
1: Okay. So, ha- all right. So, having created safety, the second op- the, the second, uh, um, the second thing is what we have been waiting to do, and that is describing the problem. The trick here is. To, uh, to strip out all of the judgment language we like to use, to just be factually clear about what we expected and what we got, yeah. the gap. So it's letting them know, hey, I, I thought you were going to pick me up at 2 o'clock. You actually arrived at 2.30. Now, you notice in what I said that there were no judgment words. It's not emotionally laden. What we tend to want to do in that moment is to say, hey, you just, you, you just blew me off.
2: Yeah, you left uh, me you, hanging, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, you just dumped me. You, you couldn't care less about me. We want to put all that in. The second principle is just describing the gap factually. And finally, the third step is to put yourself in a condition of curiosity and ask for their point of view. Hmm. And now you move to inquiry. So you've, you've stated the problem, and now you need to show as much interest in their view of it as you have for your own. So those those are the three basic things we got to do in those first few seconds.
2: Well, and those are really interesting principles. Like, so non-judgmentalness is really kind of the second one, but and the third one is curiosity. Because then I, I might actually get data from them that validate or clarifies why they're late. They may give me yeah. new data that convinces uh, shows me that oh yeah oh okay oh yeah sorry I had a flat tire oh yeah, okay well yeah
1: exactly the case.
2: You'll, that's you'll, good. you'll
1: sometimes get new information. Sometimes you'll just get new perspective on yeah. the information that you've already got. You understand their motives or fears or concerns in a way that that softens you.
2: Yeah, or just yeah, you might just get reconfirmation that they struggle doing anything on time. I mean, you know what yeah, I mean. That's, sometimes that's it's just more exactly information, right? I mean, the cool that's thing right. about the yeah, whole thing is, Joseph. I just think you've you've really done a great job in in saying, look. These are hard conversations, but there's, general, I mean, there's basic principles that will carry you through it if you'll just stick in it and stay in the conversation and be willing to have it.
1: There are, and what we hope that, uh, that the book that Crucial Accountability and Crucial Conversations does for people is just give them handles, just give them ways of breaking apart this morass of emotion that's going on because these are difficult moments. They're the, they're the most challenging of our lives. And so hopefully having a few handholds will help people take it apart, slow it down, and get to the place that they really want to be.
2: Good stuff. That's Joseph Grenny and his book, Crucial Accountability. Man, do we need uh, more and more of that in our lives, how to just relate and connect to one another. Uh, that's it for the show, by the way. We are done, and it's now time to turn it over to our good buddy, uh, Jeffrey Liam Simpson, and Screen Cleaning, where he's going to walk you through the healthiest, uh, happiest movies and media and they'll do it in a fun way how, how better to spend the next hour than with jeff simpson this is the matt townsend show we'll be back again monday make it a great weekend
9: Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm here with Cole Wissinger. And boy, oh boy, do we have a fantastic show for you today. We're going to be interviewing one of the stars of a movie you should definitely see. We'll be talking about some films that'll make you do a double take. We'll be doing another edition of Silver Lining Cinema. Of course, we'll be speaking with our good friends at uh, BYU Sports Nation. And of course, we like to end every show with our Panning for Good segment. But uh, screen cleaning is all about giving you the very best in entertainment. And right now we're going to start off by giving you the best in entertainment news. Cole, I want to talk about Steven Spielberg here for a minute, if I may. You may. Okay. You just saw uh, Ready Player One, as did I. It just mm-hmm. came out. Good movie. Thoroughly enjoyable, right? Well, he's already got his next few projects lined up. He's going to be doing next uh, the fifth installment of Indiana Jones. Right. Right. And following that, I believe the plan is to do a remake of the film West Side Story. I've heard that as film, well, film yes. Film or play, whichever mm-hmm. you want to choose there.
5: Which is a remake itself of Romeo and Juliet, which is a right original yeah. work.
9: And, I, and before we get to his next film, I want to share with you a quote. This is from Steven Spielberg. What's he got to say? There will be a time – this is not a recent quote, but it's one that he made a few years ago – There will be a time when the superhero movie goes the way of the Western. He's convinced that this superhero craze right now is kind of the fad and those will be rolled out sooner or later. Just like the Western, Mm -hmm. right? Which is funny because they still make Westerns, but they don't pull in the same numbers that they used to. But they
5: aren't the genre. There was a time in Hollywood when Westerns were what we understand superhero movies to be today. Right. Right.
9: You probably already know what I'm going to say. Well, I do, yes, but. Steven Spielberg will be directing a superhero
5: movie. Sort of. Um, there's an asterisk there because what? <laughs> Black Hawk is not so much a superhero in the conventional cape and tights kind of way. It's more of a military drama story. Even within the realms of the comic books, hey, no. they were written different.
9: Are the men and women in the military are superheroes? They're real life
5: superheroes, right? But okay. not in the conventional cape and tights kind of way. But listen to this: Steven Spielberg could be the savior. Of DC Comics or the DC Comic Movies. He could save the whole franchise. Also, probably not going to happen. Come on. So DC has no idea what they're doing with their universe. They are very scattershot. That's why people like Steven Spielberg are being called up and Scorsese. And these DC is dramatically trying to go out there and try to find people um, that will make good movies for them because they haven't gotten that recently and so by the time he's done with west side story and indiana jones 5 who knows if this black hawk thing will still be on the table who knows Mm. if people are still seeing superhero movies well maybe
9: if he directs a dc movie i'll finally like a dc movie and maybe if martin scorsese uh, directs a dc movie then i'll finally like a martin scorsese film
5: well there you go (laughs) six of one
9: Anyway, we just thought you'd enjoy that little piece of good news there for you. When we return, we're actually going to be speaking to an actress who is in a film that you're definitely going to want to check out. It's a film that you might have to look a little harder for. But hey, that's what we do every week here on Screen Cleaning. We shine a big old spotlight in all that is good in entertainment. And uh, we're going to do that when we return. This is Screen Cleaning. Screen cleaning with Jeff Simpson as well as Cole Whissinger. You know, there are plenty of big movies in theaters right now, like Rampage, Quiet Place, and uh, next week, of course, the new Avengers movie is coming out. But also in theaters is a little film with a big heart that you're likely not familiar with. It's called Getting Grace, and it's a delightful film. It's full of hope, it's full of love and redemption. And it also has a terrific cast, and today we're lucky enough to be speaking with one of the stars of Getting Grace, Marcia Dietline bennett Marcia, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me on.
9: I am so excited to talk to you about this film because, like I said, I don't think too many people know about it, and that's one of our goals here on the show is to put a spotlight on some of these good films that people should be seeing that they, they just don't know where to find.
0: Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, we're lucky enough to be playing in Utah this week. We played there last week as well, and so many people came that they extended us in all three theaters. So thank you so much for helping to get the word out there.
9: I love it. So for, for anyone who's not familiar with the film Getting Grace, why don't you tell us a little, a little about it?
0: Sure. Um, Getting Grace is a, a really beautiful uh, family film about a 16-year-old girl named Grace who um, unfortunately is facing terminal cancer, um, and, but she's very strong and very brave, and so she, she decides to befriend the local mortician in town, who's this very shy funeral director. Um, and sort of throughout the course of the movie, uh, as she's dying, she basically teaches everyone around her how to live.
9: I love that. There's a little twist of irony there. And uh, I I love that it's also directed by Daniel Roebuck, who a lot of people, again, might not know him by name, but he's got quite a recognizable face.
0: (laughs) Yes, they certainly know him. Dan Roebuck. I've known Dan since I was 19 years old, if you can believe it. Uh, We have been really sort of great friends all these years. Uh, But Dan's been in pretty much almost every movie, almost every TV show that you turn on. He was On Matlock for years. Uh, Lately, he's been on Man in the High Castle. And uh, yeah, he's one of those character actors that you go, I know that guy.
9: Right. And he's also in one of my favorite films. Anytime The Fugitive is on TV, even though we own it, we'll sit down and watch it on TV with the commercials anyway.
0: (laughs) I know. It's an amazing film. And he's great in that film. It was very exciting. I think I visited him on the set one day, and it was really fun to be around. uh,
9: That's awesome.
0: Tommy Lee Jones and all those amazing actors.
9: Yeah. Now, Marcia, enough about Daniel. Let's talk about you and the role that you play in this film. Uh, You play Grace's mother, and I'm curious to know a little bit about your journey in the film, because obviously your daughter in the film is dying of cancer, and we'd love to hear about how your character deals with that.
0: Well, um, yes. Yeah, so uh, my character Venus is not really dealing with it very well. At the beginning of the film, uh, she's a single mom and uh, she has a serious drinking problem. Um, she's basically trying to just numb herself to the fact that she's losing her daughter. So she, she takes pills and drinks a lot of alcohol and tries to just escape uh, the the pain, really the sadness. Um, but, but Eventually, you know, she realizes that she needs to be there for her daughter, and she makes some changes in her life with her daughter's help and As I said before, uh the daughter definitely uh makes sure that her mother's going to be okay by the time she goes
9: and I love that you know even though the focus seems to be on on grace because she is dying of cancer but it it, it focuses the film focuses on those around uh the victims of cancer and and how they struggle with it as well and how their lives are upended by this as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of the movie is that all of these other people are touched by her and her journey and uh it really is a lesson in, you know, living and we like to say it's like living living life as if it's every day is your first rather than as it's as if each day is your last. So, I love she that. really helps that. Thank you.
9: (laughs) Yeah. So obviously the the subject matter of the film is rather serious, but it's also got a great sense of humor. And in some parts of the film and kind of the overall theme of the film, it kind of has a a morbid sense of humor.
0: (laughs) It does. Well, Dan Dan has a very dark sense of humor and I love that about him. Um, Yeah, a lot of this film is really laugh out loud funny. And I think, you know, in talking to, Other people that I know who have been fighting cancer who saw this film, they appreciated the humor so much because they use humor a lot in their life to sort of deal with the situation. And uh, it was nice to see that represented on the big screen, I think.
9: And I don't think I'm spoiling anything by by sharing one of the lines from the film because it's actually in the trailer, if I remember correctly. But uh, Grace is walking out to this car with... Uh, the funeral director, and she looks at the the hearse and says, ooh, can we take a ride in that, or can I take a ride in that? And he says, wait your turn. <laughs> right.
0: That's just an
5: example
9: <laughs> of some of the morbid humor in the film.
0: Um, There's a lot of laugh-out-loud humor, for sure. <laughs> yeah.
9: Another another thing that I noticed from the film is that, it, kind of going along with this morbid sense of humor, is that some of the funeral arrangements that are made uh, for at least one of the characters, they're kind of unusual requests, and I, I got to thinking as you were making this film, and as you saw this film, did it did it get you thinking about what sort of funeral requests would I have when I you know when I'm getting ready to pass on?
0: I think I think I've already told my kids I'm like I want to be cremated. I don't want to be in the ground. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, yeah, and you know I had just gone through. My mom had just passed away about three months before we made made this film, and uh, I had just gone through that, and she had sort of told us little things that she wanted over the years, and it was nice to sit there with my siblings and kind of go, okay, this is what mom wanted, and let's sing this song, and let's do this thing, and, you know, it was, I think it's a good thing to prepare for that, right? Especially for the ones you're leaving behind. Oh, sure. What you you wanted, I think.
9: And, Marsha, one of the things that I really appreciated about this film is that I don't consider... uh, I don't feel like I've experienced a lot of loss in my life. You know, I don't have any living grandparents left, but other than my grandparents, I don't know that I've experienced great loss, you know, especially not the loss of a daughter. And I have three kids myself. And so it really it really got me thinking, how would I feel if I were in the situation and my daughter was sick? I would just be torn apart. And so I I really appreciate that this film got me thinking and feeling
0: right. Right. No, it definitely I think people leave this film and they just want to hug their loved ones. Absolutely. Um, when I when we screened it in uh, Sandy on uh, last Saturday, uh, there was uh people came in that I didn't know who they were and um they saw the film and the woman sitting there was actually with two friends of hers and and those two friends were brother and sister and their brother was is dying of cancer and I never heard anyone laugh more in this film than that man who was watching this film. And then the woman said to me at the end of the movie, she said, you know, this is a movie that will stay with me forever. She said, this movie makes you think and makes you feel. And uh, that's that's, I think, the greatest gift of the film. Like, it's like there is grace everywhere if you just, you know, open up to it.
9: Absolutely. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Marcia Dietline who is one of the stars of the film Getting Grace, and we're talking about the film. And uh, Marsha, I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the cast. It's a great sure. cast. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, you were fantastic in it, and we already talked about thank Daniel you. Roebuck, of course. I noticed Richard Pryor Jr. was in the film, and he looks just like yes. his dad. He does. Yeah, (laughs) he's a great
0: guy. He was so sweet to come in and do that.
9: I was so excited, too, to see Dana Ashbrook from Twin Peaks.
0: Yes. Now, Dana Ashbrook, this is a good story. Dana and I did our first film together 30 years ago. Uh, It was a zombie film called Return of the Living Dead Part Two. And uh, we were the two leads, and he play- we played each other's love interest, and we've stayed in touch over the years. And when Dan was looking for the character of Ron, I-, I suggested Dana. So it was so fun for us to reunite after so many years together.
9: Marcia, you are so fantastic. You're creating jobs and, and doing favors for friends. <laughs> you, s- you're- you sound like a terrific person.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that.
9: (laughs) So I'm curious to know, what was your experience like working on the film? You you mentioned that you're already good friends with Daniel Roebuck and you've got a relationship with Dana Ashbrook as well. But what was it like working on the film?
0: Well, it was, I mean, it was amazing for me because Dan, it's the first film that Dan has directed. And I've known him so many years as an actor and worked with him as an actor over the years. But to work with him as a director was just a dream come true for me. I mean, honestly, I, I he was, he, as he is, I'm sure you can imagine his personality. He, he's not really shy like that funeral director, but he is one of the most giving, loving human beings on the planet. And just to go through this experience with him, it was heaven. I mean, it really was. It's, it's the most fun I think I've ever had on a movie set. He's He's just the best, and he created a tone of, generosity and uh, um, openness so we could all play and explore. And he's a terrific actor. So when you have a good actor directing you, that just makes everybody's performances better.
9: Marsha, I've noticed that you've you've been in some big budget films as well as some independent films. And I'm curious to know what some of the differences are working on, on both of those types of films.
0: Well, I mean, the big budget films are nice because uh, there, there's a big budget. And, sure. <laughs> and it's very comfortable, and, you know, and, um, but I, I, and they're great. And you work with amazing, I've gotten to work with some amazing actors. Uh, but even some of the bigger budget films I've done still would probably be considered more in the independent level. Like uh, I did a film called Little Children with Kate Winslet, who is a dream come true. She's the best. And, uh, but that's still in the, in the big scheme of things would probably be more considered like an independent film. Um but true independent films, I've worked a lot with Ed Burns who's kind of like the godfather of independent movies. Yeah. Right? I mean he's amazing. <laughs> I love him. And uh and those films I, I find I like the smaller films because I find that you really become a family. You know, with with Eddie's films we didn't have a, a couple of them we didn't even have much of a crew at all. Uh, we did our own hair and makeup and we just kind of played, you know, it was, it was like summer camp in a sense. (laughs) Um, it was great. Uh, and so I find that you just become closer to everyone on the set. And I feel like the big difference is, uh, on independent films, nobody's really there because you're making a lot of money. You're there because you're making art in a sense. And on the bigger budget films, of course, you're making art as well, but there's, there's just Uh, It's a bigger crew. It's harder to to become sort of intimate with each other. And um, I don't know. I mean, they're both fantastic. But if I had to choose, I, I certainly love the smaller films where you really become a family. Sure.
9: Marcia, I understand that this film is doing quite well in the awards circuit, and I, I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes as well, and it has an audience score of 96%, which is bigger than any of the the top ten movies at the box office right now. So what are, what are some of the awards and recognition that this film has been getting?
0: Well, we uh, were in two film festivals before we were picked up for distribution, and at the Northeast Film Festival we won... Uh, best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Maddie Dundon, who played Grace. And, she's fantastic uh, won... in the
9: movie, by oh, the way.
0: She's is, she is amazing. Well, let's sticky that. We should come back to her because I think she's really special. Um, and then we won the Audience Choice Award for that festival. And then the other festival we went to, they didn't give out acting awards and stuff, but we won Best of the Best. Like, we won the, the Best Award at the festival. Um, and that was up in the Adirondacks, so... Yeah, it was, it's great. It was really a fun feeling to be there and know that people are loving your movie.
9: Yeah, and you mentioned Madeline Dundon, and she's a name that people probably aren't familiar with as well, but she probably will be, right? She was just uh, fantastic uh, in this movie.
0: She blows my mind. You know, Dan and I joke, you know, his first film was Cave Girl, and mine was Return of the Living Dead Part 2. And <laughs> Maddie, Maddie gets getting great. yeah. Um, <laughs> Dan, Dan found her. You know, all of the kids in the film, All it was all of them. It was their first film. And uh, he found them all locally in the Lehigh Valley where we shot, which is where Dan Robuck grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And Maddie Dundon went to high school where Dan went to high school. In fact, Dan actually directed her father in a play. Oh, wow. <laughs> in school. And when she heard the movie was coming around, she went to her dad and said, hey, can you hook me up? you know, can you get me a, a meeting with Daniel? And uh, he found her. And I remember him calling me and he said, I think I found our grace. And I was so excited. Um, and she is, she's magnificent. I think what a special kid that, that Maddie duncan is.
9: Well, Marcia, just in closing here, uh, just so that we can get this movie more exposure and, and tell people how to find it, where, where can we go to to check this movie out?
0: there in the salt lake valley Um uh, well one in salt lake at the um the gateway the megaplex theaters at the gateway and it's also playing in sandy at jordan commons at the megaplex theaters there and it's down playing in centerville as well and then on the east coast now it's still in a couple of theaters in bethlehem pennsylvania it's at the roxy and it's at the oh i forget the other one but um it's right there you can go to our website gettinggracethemovie.com And click on Find Locations, and it'll show you where it's still playing.
9: Well, her name is Marsha Dietline bennett and she's been talking to us about the film that she's in, Getting Grace. Go check it out. Go check up the website, and uh, you won't regret it. It's a heartwarming film. You're definitely going to want to see it. Thank you so much, Marsha. Coming up next on Screen Cleaning, have you ever popped in a movie you've been waiting to see for months only to discover it's a different film with a slightly different theme or title? Well, when we return, we're going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews about film Doppelgangers. Doppelgangers. You ever sat down to watch a film you're really excited to see, only to discover it's a completely different movie with a similar premise? It happens to the best of us. And as we uh, Cole and I shared earlier, it happens all the time at the Red Box because there's a company that uh, specifically will try to create these films that are eerily similar in title or in premise to blockbusters just to try to grab onto their successful coattails. Well, this is not a new problem, and Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, he and I are going to mention a uh, series of films that are eerily similar in uh, premise that, you know, one film suffered because of the other film's success, and other times audiences were just plain confused, and maybe it hurt the box office of both films. So, Rod, the, the first couple of films we want to talk about with you are the films Ants, Which is uh, a computer animated film starring Mm -hmm. Woody Allen and A Bug's Life, which I believe was either the second or third Pixar second Pixar film to come out.
10: Yeah. Yeah. And I think obviously so many people, they, they have a bug's life sitting on the DVD or the Blu-ray shelf, but I think a lot of people have forgotten about Ants and Ants was a little bit of a bizarre film. I remember when I screened it years and years ago, this was the first animated uh, release from DreamWorks Studios, which now they've actually split into their own animation company. And the thing that struck me about this movie, Jeff, is that remember it was rated PG. And up to that point, I don't think there'd been another PG animated movie. And this one had a little bit of sexual innuendo and those types of things going on in it. And, and the violence was a little more real, too, with the digital stuff going on.
9: So this is Woody Allen animated. That's mm-hmm. interesting. See, that, that hooks me right there.
10: But, uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Th- I know. I remember that as soon as I heard Woody voice, Woody Allen's voice, he plays a, a worker ant, And see if this sounds familiar. And he's fed up with having to live under totalitarian rule. You know, it's just a typical Woody Allen type, right. of, a, type yeah. of a role going on.
9: You know, despite my best efforts, I cannot get my girls to want to sit down and watch this film with me. I've never seen it. I really want to, but I can't really justify me sitting down and watching it alone.
10: So, (laughs) yeah, you know, for me, I remember, you know, it was I'd be curious to watch it again now that uh, now that I've seen, you know, the animation world has embraced a lot more serious topics over the years. But yeah, compared to A Bug's Life, A Bug's Life is still a lot more fun.
9: Unfortunately, though, B- A Bug's Life seems to be a Pixar movie that people tend to forget or leave mm-hmm. out on their lists of best Pixar films. You Sometimes you just forget it's there. But they both came out in 1998. And uh, it, wow. Yeah. Similar kind of premise, though, it sounds. So in 2003 and 2004, we've got Finding Nemo, which is about this clownfish who's on this search to find his uh, his lost son and a shark's tail which i did not see but again similar kind of characters and very close uh, as far as the timeline is concerned what can you tell me about a shark's tail
10: well, A Shark's Tale, and I hope I'm remembering the right movie here because it's years ago I saw it, but there were some things in here I did like. Uh, Will Smith is one of the voices. I think, again, it was rated PG, and it certainly you know doesn't go as young. It's not appropriate for as young an audience as Finding Nemo is. But it's, it's great because some of these sharks – um are dealing with having to it's kind of like an addictions counseling group where there this one shark is going through, you know, not eating fish. Fish are our friends. I remember my kids yeah. used to quote this line over and over. You know, there are some funny little things in this movie that made it a worthwhile film, even though it's very much a forgotten movie. So it's
9: the same thing as as finding Nemo with the shark saying fish are our friends.
10: Yeah, it's, wow. it, I know. See, and I I, I remember, I'm wondering if I'm getting that line mixed up. Because see, here I go. This is where the two movies kind of meld together in my mind. You're right, that line's from Finding Nemo. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> uh, but I remember this film, though, it had this, so there's a, there's this boss who's played by Martin Scorsese, and he's like a mafia guy. And then he's got a couple of other, a couple of other thugs that work with him. It actually sounds quite horrible, but I do remember there being some fun things about this. And I wish I had the time to go back and watch it again. But it was one of those films. We gave it a B at the time. I'm reading, I'm reading our review here in front of me, and uh, I do remember coming out and thinking, "Hey, that was pretty cool." Yeah
9: well you're putting a big smile on cole's face because he likes anything that will smith does
10: and uh, yeah. yeah well and again and hearing guys like scorsese and robert de niro in an animated film that you can even think about showing your 9-year-old is quite amazing
7: yes
9: you're making Cole's day right now, I'm just telling you. He's he's ecstatic over here. So another couple of films that came out about the same time, very similar in premise, Madagascar, which, believe it or not, I have never seen, but I have seen The Penguins of Madagascar, and oh. the film <laughs> The Wild. So two films with very similar premises where they're they uh, it's these animals in a zoo that are trying to escape. I've never seen Madagascar, but I've seen about 10 minutes of the wild before turning it off.
10: <laughs> that was probably a wise choice. You know, we <laughs> gave both of these movies reasonably good grades. Um, I think both of them fell into like the B range. Uh, Madagascar. I, I after my kids sang that little "I like to move it, move it" song two hundred times around oh our my house, I'd had it with that movie. And <laughs> the Wild was just very forgettable. Madagascar was at least memorable, even if it was memorable for all the wrong, wrong reasons. But I'm surprised the Wild. Everything gets made into a sequel these days and it never did it just kind of got lost and uh, a very similar story about a lion that escapes from the zoo because he feels like thing the world will be better on the outside so yeah two movies are very easy to put together in your mind the wild did get a g rating so you know it's very suitable probably even for younger children
9: and interesting the wild did not do nearly as well as madagascar obviously because they have all these other madagascar films but the wild was from disney and -hmm. it was kind of a flop
10: it really was. This is when Disney was really struggling, uh, trying to uh, trying to play, for lack of a better word, with doing 3D animation and that type of thing. And uh, a lot of the stuff, there were a few movies that came out during this period. Uh, I don't know if you remember Home on the Range. I, I think that was the last 2D flat animated movie they did. And uh, yeah, they made some forgettable stuff during this period. This is when Pixar was the shining star. And now it
9: seems like Disney is doing better than Pixar.
10: Well, you know, part of it is the, the melding of the two companies together. And, yeah, we're starting to see that that shift. And maybe it's just a balance between the two that's happening. But, yeah.
9: Okay. So we've got a couple of other films here. This is kind of the the one that has been the biggest offender, I think. And I think it's the one that has suffered the most financially because you have these two films about magicians. And, you know, aside from the Now You See Me films that we've seen in recent years, 2006 saw two films about magicians, The Prestige and The Illusionist. And this is the one that I think had people scratching their
10: heads the most, not knowing which film they were going to see. Absolutely. And to this day... I still um, have to really try and separate the two of them in my mind and which one had the Nikola Tesla character. That was the Prestige. that was the prestige, mm-hmm. right, yes, okay, and uh yeah, it really to me it's really difficult keeping these two apart. I remember both of them being fairly engaging, interestingly, we gave both of them a c plus grade, so neither of them quite recommended for family viewing, mainly due to to violence that was in the films but uh and then to toss in and make the confusion even more so, there was another illusionist that released in 2010, a little French animation, right. which we did really like. And it, we gave that one a B grade. So, And that one know, was
9: nominated for Best Animated Film at the Academy Awards, too.
10: Yes, it was. It was nominated. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting how, as the years go by, the movies just seem to meld together more. But, yeah, I think I personally I preferred the prestige a little more than the illusionist me
9: too. me too and
10: I really enjoyed the Michael Caine character in the prestige and uh so and David Bowie by the way playing Nikola Tesla yeah. <laughs> uh, in that movie too which is interesting and Andy Circus in it as well There's some yeah. great names in that one
9: and he didn't have the
10: little CGI dots all over his face when he was in his <laughs> scenes either yes Andy Circus <laughs> is the real actor who he really is yeah. and uh yeah, what an amazing guy he is. You know, he owns his own stop motion company. It, it, it's just a, an amazing or not stop motion. What do they call it? I can't remember, Jeff, the yeah. technical term, but he's actually motion, motion he actually capture. Is, yeah, motion capture. Yes. Motion
9: and he's capture. he's director. He's directing speaking about films to confuse us. He's directing another adaptation of The Jungle Book. Not too mm. long after uh, the Jungle Book that Disney just put out. So oh, very cool. Confusion abounds. Um, and to be fair to The Illusionist, even though I did prefer The Prestige, I actually liked The Illusionist more than I thought I would. I avoided it for a while, and then I finally watched it and kind of enjoyed it. Uh, mm-hmm. And then one last one here. This isn't one that people usually associate together, but they both came out the same year. And I actually prefer the film that did not go on to spawn a bunch of sequels. Me too. So we're we're talking about Despicable Me and Mega Mind. They both have characters in them called well, in in one it's Minions, in the other it's called Minion, singular. <laughs> and they're both villains that are kind of trying to reform a little bit against their you know, against their wishes, even in some cases. But Despicable Me and Megamind. And it sounds like you and I both preferred Megamind to Despicable Me.
10: Megamind was much, much better than I ever expected to to be. It's one of those movies I remember going to the theater and thinking, I can get through this, and coming out thinking, wow, who wrote that? It was really impressive.
9: Yeah, and Will Ferrell is always entertaining as in you know who would have thought that you would you would see Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt. in an animated film so that's again <laughs> great casting right there My problem with Despicable Me is the more of these films they come out with, the less I like the original. It's kind of like what happened when I read The Da Vinci Code and enjoyed it, and then I saw the film and it made me like the book less. It's weird Mm -hmm. how it does that. But, uh, yeah, this last Despicable Me film, I kind of suffered through and I I fell asleep. But I think the worst of that franchise is by far Minions, which – I I refuse to sit and watch that with my kids on Netflix. I won't do yes, ab- it.
10: <laughs> absolutely. It was very painful. Hey, can I squeeze in my my least favorite twin movies? Sure. Remember when the Y2K thing was going on at the end of the 90s and we got Deep Impact and Armageddon within yes. weeks of each other. Yes. Probably two of the worst high-budget movies ever made <laughs> that mimic each other. Oh,
9: bad. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, Armageddon was kind of uh, fun bad, where mm-hmm. and Deep Rising or not not Deep Rising, that's another <laughs> film. Deep Impact that came out at a t- it must have come out at a good time because I was a lot younger and I think I enjoyed it more than Armageddon. But I'm sure if I were to go back and watch it again, I haven't seen it since it came out. I'm sure I
10: would be right there with you. Yeah, all I know is this scene with uh, what's his name um, playing with animal crackers on Liv Tyler's stomach while the world's going down (laughs) in 25 minutes just got me. I thought, okay, that's it. I'm out.
9: Yep. Well, Rod, we appreciate you here on Screen Cleaning. And uh, hopefully, we've done a good job of confusing everyone out there by giving you these films that are so similar in either title or premise that uh, you're not going to be able to set them straight ever again. But uh, some of them are better than others, and it's worth checking them out. Up next, uh, Cole and I will be giving our reviews for a couple of other Doppelganger films here on Screen Cleaning. That is our Silver Lining Cinema Stinger. We're going to be doing that here in just a minute. But uh, first I want to tell you about a production company. Sometimes success can come from riding the coattails of others. I'm sure we've all kind of experienced that a little bit in our lives. That certainly seems to be the case for The Asylum, an independent film company and distributor that produces low budget, direct to video films, most of which you'll probably see at the red box when you go to rent a movie. Many of the company's films capitalize on productions by major studios often using film titles and scripts very similar to current blockbusters in order to lure customers. And uh, these titles have been dubbed mockbusters. So they've actually gotten into trouble over the years. They've been around for a little while. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, I know that... uh, they came out with a Hobbit film that they got in trouble for, and they have a lot of other films that are very similar well, yeah. to Do others. we want to go
5: through some of these just to see if they remind you of any particular film? Snakes
9: on a Train, I know, is one of them. Abraham
5: Lincoln versus Zombies. Okay. The Fast and the Fierce. I don't, I don't okay. know what that's trying to um, get imagination going hmm. for. Atlantic Rim sounds just vaguely Rim. familiar okay. to something. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so
9: Cole and I thought it would be interesting to each watch one of these films – he watched a different one than I did – and to give a positive review of them. Because, you know, some people might look at these films and say, oh, they're so bad that they have to go direct to video, they have to rip off other films, and there's zero budget on these things. But come on, there's got to be some good to be found in these films. Well, I am going to review the film Cargo – which uh, you know, might some somebody might look at this and think, oh, that's just a ripoff of Cars Three. Come on, it did come out this year, as did Cars three. Cargo tells the story of Danny, a teenaged car who's struggling to deal with the mounting peer pressure at school, as well as pressure from his dad at home. His dad wants him to follow in his footsteps and become a mechanic. And Danny's rebelliousness leads to his father being shipped off to Clunker Island, which is a place where old, beat-up cars get sent to, uh, to be repurposed as junk metal. And so Danny has to rescue his father from Clunker Island. Let's talk about the voice cast in this film first. You've got Ed Asner, who did a Pixar movie. He was also, you know, on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Everybody knows Ed Asner. Everybody loves Ed Asner. He plays the father. There's Melissa Joan Hart of Clarissa Explains It All fame, as well as Sabrina the Teenage Witch fame, as well as a handful of other ABC Family shows she's done with Joey Lawrence. Uh, They've been a pretty good pair. It's like Judy Garland and and Mickey Rooney. As well as Haley Joel Osment, the Oscar-nominated actor of The Sixth Sense, who plays Danny, the rebellious... The, he kind of has a hard time. He doesn't know who he wants to be. Here's another plus. It's a musical. Now, this is something Can't I felt go wrong with a musical. Yeah, I felt this was really missing from any of the Cars films, was, come on, where's the music? I want to see these cars singing and dancing. You know, uh, it's not enough for me to just see them acting like humans. Uh, there are songs like— um, there's a there's a rap song. There's a Cargo theme song. There's a song that Danny sings called I'm Just a Teenage Car. So, yeah, that would have been nice in the Cars movies. Well, we've got them here in Cargo. It's jam-packed, and I mean jam-packed, from front bumper to back bumper with car puns. One of the characters' names—listen to these names—Vincent Diesel, Greta Carbo, Sean Carnery— Don Carleone, La Carcinostra, Art Carbuncle, Cabigail, and Carlotta. I'm sure there were more, but those are just the ones that I was able to write down. Uh, another problem with the Cars franchise is the flashiness. You know, they're trying to be super fast, and it's a lot of noise, a lot of movement, which can be upsetting to a lot of kids and a little off-putting. This film has little as little movement as possible. There are multiple chase scenes. But they're all slow speed scenes. I don't know. I'm not trying to say that that's them trying to save a few bucks on the animation, which is very expensive. Of course not. I think they were more worried about the kids. Plus a lot of bang for your buck. Most people would probably look at this and think that they could have made it into a 45-minute film or a 60-minute film. No. The filmmakers blessed us with 90 minutes. They're doing it for you, Jeff. The best bang for your buck. A buck fifty at the Redbox.
5: There you go. (laughs) That's Cargo. And the Asylum film that I chose to watch is called Planet of the Sharks. Really? Now, right from the get-go, this movie has... Uh, something wonderful going for it, because it doesn't just lean on the franchise of Planet of the Apes. Okay. That's kind of the image that it's trying to induce with you. But after after a couple subtle homages uh, within the first couple scenes, just like War of the Planet of the Apes did, and I saw that a couple weeks ago as well, they really decide to just clear themselves from that Planet of the title. And go in an entirely different direction Good to give you something them. new. That's so great. if it's what you expected, they're subverting expectations, which is something I always look for in a movie. Absolutely. Planet of the Sharks has to deal with a far distant future where the polar ice caps have melted. This is a this is really an ecological warning film yes. that after the polar ice caps melt, everything on Earth floods and society is left to just a couple peer looking, boat looking societies that are are separated from one another by just large swashes of water. Okay. And the, the kind of societies that that are built up there are just full of uh, eclectic individuals covering <laughs> all good word all sorts yeah. of all sorts of people and, and places. There's one girl that does just a spot on Cajun accent that will really th- make you feel that you're back in New Orleans.
9: Wow. So would you, I don't want to ask you if you would recommend it, but, uh... Did it did it have you on the edge of your seat
5: edge of my seat for the whole ride? The sharks are are beautiful. And and again, I'm hoping that this will fit into the other asylum creation and franchise, maybe the Sharknado cinematic universe that that someday the Sharknado films, the, the Sharknado will take up so much that it will actually flood the earth and lead to the world we see in Planet of the Sharks.
9: You know, I did notice this as I was rifling through all the different titles from the asylum is that. The Sharknado uh, franchise has done so well that the Asylum is basically parodying themselves with all these Sharknado ripoffs.
5: It's true. There are five Sharknado films now and two Planet of the Shark films with upcoming this year Empire of the Sharks that I won't be missing. Interesting.
9: Well – you can find them at your local Redbox, that you can't miss them. Just look for a familiar title that's just slightly off and you'll know it's an asylum film. In return we'll be speaking with our good friends at uh, BYU Sports Nation to see what's coming up on their show. This is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend show. This is the sound of the two of our most epic guests here on Screen Cleaning today. I'm speaking, of course, of Jerem Jordan and Brian Logan of BYU Sports Nation fame. And uh, they're here to tell us more about what's coming up on their program today here in just about 10 minutes. Jerem and Brian, how are you?
8: What is good, Jeffrey? We are good. We're doing well. (laughs) Yep. I'm Gucci. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, I, I like the epic music because uh, tomorrow BYU Men's Volleyball is playing for a championship at home. Ooh, what time? The, the uh, 9 Eastern, 7 local on BYU TV against, think- against UCLA.
11: I think I want to wake up to that music now. Like I want that. It's to epic, right? Arm. It's hard not to get a yeah. little juice like, in the veins. How could you not wake up to that music on your alarm clock? <laughs> you gotta wake up. You're
8: like, I need to brush my teeth
11: with right. intensity. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh.
8: <laughs> that brings
9: up an interesting question: Is what is the type of song that you guys like to wake up to? Do you like something harder like that that jolts you awake, or do you like something a little more soothing?
11: Ooh, um, in my younger, uh, less mature days, definitely. Uh, something more harder just to wake up. Now, I have to have to I have to have something a little bit more soothing like gospel music, you know, and certain specific types of uh, lyrics, I would say. You know, like thanking you and praising you for waking me up. That kind of just keeps me humble.
8: I'm mm. just annoyed when I get up. Like, <laughs> I, I can't wake up not annoyed. I'm always like, why am I awake? Yeah. The other day, I took a brief nap after I got home from work and my kid came up to me with her stuffed animal little elephant and threw it right in my face <laughs> she's like daddy boom i was like why mm. hi Venna. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you,
11: gotta, you gotta pick it up and throw it back at her man i <laughs> okay it's okay you're you're her dad you i need,
8: need that. yeah <laughs> i need a boy and
11: then i can no this is what i do with my, with my sons i'm like dude did that did you like that when you when i did it no, then don't do it to me because I don't like it either. And then it's, it's done forever. You know,
9: it's funny you mention having a boy because we've got a 10-and-a-half-month-old boy. And I know last week on the program we talked about the film A Quiet Place. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I
8: saw it last week after we chatted about it. Okay.
9: Yes. How do know what so that is? That is basically a, mm. a documentary about my family Mount trying silence. trying not to wake up my 10 and a half month old
8: <laughs> 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 tiptoeing around a little less intense but yes
9: yeah we've done everything short of painting uh, parts of the floor to know where we're allowed to step <laughs> but like yeah. he is the
11: world's lightest sleeper it's crazy oh really
8: oh that's tough yeah oh you know what you got to do
11: no wonder you've been putting in 50 hours a week this is what you got to this weeks. what you got to do you got to you have to get him used to the to the noise Really? Yes. I swear to you. I swear to you. With, See, with with my with my two-year-old, when he was first born, we got him used to the noise. So we literally – I mean we'd have parties and – not bad parties, but we'd have a lot of people over and things like that. And he was so used to it that it didn't matter.
9: Now, you know, we could use like a white noise uh, maker. We We do – what I do when I'm leaving the house is I turn on our smart thermostat – Just the fan so that it makes some type of noise so that I can make a clean getaway.
11: Yeah. Mm, Nice. Mm -hmm. Stealth mode. (laughs) That's that's smart.
9: So other than tips on how not to wake your kids up, what else is coming (laughs) up on BYU Sports Nation here in about six and a half minutes?
8: We're a week away from the NFL Draft Day 2, which is where Fred Warner could be drafted. How high will he be drafted? We'll talk to one uh, expert, and we'll discuss what team we want to draft Fred Warner.
11: Hmm. Okay. Any playoff team is good for me. Any right. team that will be on <laughs> the playoff? Yeah, any playoff Plus
8: team. the best sibling combo in BYU sports history. We're going to talk to a guy that might be a part of the best one ever. Brendan Sanderman's volleyball, as mentioned, swept USC last night. They play UCLA Saturday night, 9 Eastern on BYU TV for the conference championship in Provo. Oh,
11: I thought His you were older brother talk t- 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 Taylor
8: was national player of the year, and he's an Olympian. I thought you were going to talk about Steve Young and Bob Young. And Brigham Young and Mike did Brigham play the Youngs, the Kafousis, the Warners, the Reynolds, the Coopers in baseball. The Roberts and ba- there's a lot. Wow, there's I didn't know lot. there were that many. There's a lot of great siblings. Like I think BYU has more great sibling combos than any other school ever. Like there's more of a family connection to BYU. Like more siblings go to the same school through with BYU than other schools. I feel like.
11: Yeah, hundred percent. Well, I mean, you you have just the culture right of, of just being family already. You know, with the church and everything, but I mean, most and then kids, athletics. most yeah. The yeah, Hawes, Tyler, and TJ, Dad played here. The kids, though, here, right? you know, the, kids all, the kids, all grow up watching BYU in whatever sport, right? Yeah. So obviously, like, my like brother the, is too. Like, does
8: Washington have thirty combos of siblings across eight sports that have been like awesome? No, nope. you know, like I don't know. It's
11: everybody's going to be in one, one, have their eyes on one place. So, like for example, with me and my cousin Joe, right. I'm gonna, I, I liked USC growing up, and he, I think, liked Oregon growing up, right? Still in the same household, but different times and different situations. Your eyes or interests are going to be different. It's not like that way with BYU, though, right? Everybody's going to watch the church no matter what. Everybody's a default BYU fan. So not
8: every about. Mormon is. That's,
11: yes, yes, no. yes. They're <laughs> no. in the top three. You, if you are Mormon, BYU, in any sport, you're top, that's a top three fan right there. They're, wow. they're top Yeesh, the That's Utah guaranteed. fans
8: disagree, dude. Guaranteed. That's Bryce guaranteed. Harper hates BYU. Hey, it There's sounds like I
9: need to let you guys go. <laughs> I need to let you go so that before your show, show. Yeah, you've got, you've got, got time to duke this out a little. It's pre-game. So. Uh, Jam doesn't want
11: Then of this. <laughs>
9: <laughs> 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 wow. Issues. Issues, fellas. Okay, <laughs>
11: have a great show, and
9: we'll talk to you again later. Okay, thanks, Jeff. BYU Sports Nation is coming up next. Man, they were really going at it. I couldn't get in a word edgewise.
5: Well, do do you, do you and your siblings have opinions on this?
9: <laughs> no, not really.
5: There you go. Yeah, it's all right. Let the professionals handle it, Jeff.
9: Anyway, as you know, we like to end each show with our panning for good segment. There's good in them dark hills. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, earlier in the program, we spoke with Marsha Dietline bennett who was in the film uh, Getting Grace. We talked uh, about that film, and you should definitely go check that out. One of the other reasons I was excited to speak with Marsha is because she was also, after looking at her IMDb page, I discovered that she was in another film that I would like to briefly talk about now here on Screen Cleaning. It's a little film called Little Manhattan. If you don't know anything about Little Manhattan... It's starring – it's got Josh Hutcherson from all of the Hunger Games movies. It also has Bradley Cooper from Cole, some of your favorite horror films, and from West Wing. I guess we should mention that. right? As well as Cynthia Nixon from a show we won't talk about. But uh, Little Manhattan is a tale of first love, and it is just such a sweet, clever, cute movie – and uh, also, if if you're a fan of movies of reconciliation where, you know, there are parents that are separated or divorced and you want to see them reconcile, this is a film to go see. It's PG. It's got some great themes in it. And really, who doesn't love a good, cute love story with 10-year-olds in it? <laughs> That could be a whole other topic because it seems like a lot of movies we're getting today either deal with like really young love or really old love where you have like Michael Douglas and Diane Keaton falling in love. Or there's another one coming out with uh, Craig T. Nelson from Coach and Diane Keaton is in that one, too, I think, as well as uh, Mary Steenburgen. Anyway, just go home and, and kiss the ones that you love. And, reckon, or uh, well, if you need reconciliation, do that. But just reminisce about the days of old when you first fell in love. First love, that's what it's all about, folks, here on Screen Cleaning. We'll be back next week to give you the best in entertainment.